Hello, mate. Hey, up, mate. How's it going? Very well, mate. On this lovely sunny day, just uh, nipped out of the shop. Uh, I was uh, listening to listen to your interview there, just thinking, oh, what what better way to like like she said, what better way to spend her uh, almost thirty degree day than uh, doing podcasts? And I think me and you though, we wouldn't have it any other way. Oh no, I know we won't. I don't think I don't think me and you. I don't. Well, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm not the running <laughs> type. So uh, I did the Sheffield half marathon a few years ago, and when I finished it, mm. I'm like, oh, don't they g you up to do another marathon or whatever? I was like, nah, that's it. That's it for me <laughs> now for uh, long distance running. Yeah, I don't know about you. Yeah. Have you uh, ever been inspired to do any running or anything? I did like the I did the couch to five k thing for a while last year. Like like everyone else during lockdown, definitely put a a few pounds on in that first lockdown and. Thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a go, and it actually is quite good. Um, but I was, you know, I'm running like half a k at a time, and then having a nice rest. Like I'm not doing a, a marathon at that point. But I'm, yeah, I'm more of a walker um, than a runner. But it is, uh, it is absolutely crazy out there today. It's like it is literally the uh, the hottest weekend of the year. But you know, I'm ginger and pale, so you know, I'd, I'd only <laughs> be sat out there with like factor 100 on in the shade anyway. So I'd rather be inside with a bit with a bit of coffee, some uh, some drinks and such, and there. Uh, getting ready for this uh, this marathon with you. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on and doing it with me. I was just thinking then, because obviously originally I was just going to do it on my own and then have a bunch of guests on, and I was like, I was so glad that you agreed to... Uh Come on and help me with this because I think it would have been a bit of a, a bit bit of a struggle somehow. Uh, I'm here to run interference, mate. Whenever, uh, like I say, one of us needs to uh, to disappear to the loo, that type of thing. You know, the glamorous stuff. You know, stopping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what have you got? Have you got like snacks and stuff? Are you like what? What are you? You're all um all ready for the day? Um, or is, it, is Lisa going to be helping out? I think yeah. Well, Lisa's going to be making me a steak dinner at about seven o'clock. I think. Um, I said, can you oh, cut nice. it all up for? <laughs> can... Well, the plan was to uh, have a frozen pizza and then I was like, can you cut it up for me like I'm um, an OAP so I can just like, you know, fork it into my mouth, basically. What about you? Have you um, <laughs> I was going to have like a gigantic vat of drink, but then I was like, well, that means I'll be running to the toilet every two seconds. So I've kind of just got the window open, got a brew and then um, a, a small cup of water. I've just nipped. I've got like, I'm quite lucky. I've got a corner shop pretty much next door to my flat. So I nipped down there about half an hour ago and they were closed. And I was like, oh no, my plans for the entire day have <laughs> rumbled here. Um, but I, ju- I just nipped down while you were doing the interview then and got myself a few uh, few Diet Cokes uh, before they changed the recipe. Uh, a few flavoured waters, got some snacks and stuff. I think I'll I'll probably order some food through the day. You know, gotta, uh, it, it gives yourself some, something to aim for, I think. So, you know, maybe at about the, the three hour point, might get a, a little McDonald's um, delivery as like a treat for the weekend. I've been in the gym all week, so I think it's fair. Um, but yeah, spread spread it out through the day, and we'll uh, we'll we'll still be standing by the time we get the uh, the grapple lads on at uh, <laughs> at eleven p.m. later. I know, yeah. Um, Gareth just messaged us, didn't he, to say that um, yeah, he was uh, he just finished his morning bath. Of course mm-hmm. he did, and he was just going outside with a book and a few beers, and he was like, "I'll <laughs> see you in I'll see you in half a day." <laughs> oh motherfucker! Yeah, oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, that that, that guy. Um, yeah, yeah, that he's, guy, um, Gareth. <laughs> Honestly, he loves a bath. Um, he is the he is the the, the man who uh, who likes his uh, his morning baths on a Saturday. Uh, I don't mind a late a late night bath's okay with me. Sunday afternoon bath's okay mm. with me. First thing in the morning, that's a very uh, very Gareth thing to do. Um, very niche, yeah. isn't it? I've it, honestly, Benno, though, I've been I've so been blown jumps. away by how how much money that we've raised so far. I mean, uh, we're already over halfway. It's uh, we're at currently five hundred seventy two pounds of the thousand uh, pound target, which doesn't mean. 
that people can stop donating. I'm just saying how brilliant it is that, you know, we've had so many amazing supporters and people being so generous, you know, not only with their time coming on the show today, but also with mm. their money as well. It's been great oh, to yeah. see uh, the turnout for it. Definitely, yeah. I can see uh, a few people uh, popping up in the chat as well. Uh, a few regular Grapple listeners coming in. So, no, it's great. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, yeah, we can uh, we can smash that record today. I'm convinced we can uh, we can smash that uh, that that next goal. So, I think, uh, yeah, hopefully, it'll uh, only go up through the deck. Yeah, exactly. Because um, it's funny, isn't it? Because we've sort of like podcasted for uh, it must be about four or five years now. You know over the lore and over mm. post-wrestling and stuff, and obviously you've gone on massive success with Grapple. But um, I don't think we've ever had that. You know, I, they usually have interviews where people talk about how they got into wrestling in the first shows. I don't think we've ever talked like that before. So, yeah, because I was wondering, like, how you actually got into wrestling. Is yours a similar story to mine when it first came on Sky in the UK and, and the like? I think so. I mean, for me, like, yeah, I'm a only a couple of years um, younger than you, but I will always mention it. Um, but we always, always <laughs> say it on Grapple as well, you know. A couple of years younger than, uh, than JP and Gareth, but not that much. But I'm, I just I'm the took same. a massive swig of tea when you said that, so I nearly spat it all No, I'm, uh, for me, it's, it is, yeah, that, that early 90s point. Um, like, I, I feel like, you know, we're a lucky generation in that we live through multiple boom periods, I would say. Um, yeah. Like for me, like I, I do remember it being massive in school in like, you know, 1991 and 1992. And my main memory is my cousin John kind of talking me into into watching it because you always got that one mate haven't you who's like uh, who's, who's the head of the curve and uh gets you into new hobbies and such so i do remember kind of just watching wrestling with him and i've got a distinct memory of seeing like a big boss man uh something involving the big boss man and the mountie um is, is what i seem to remember but i'm not sure if that time scale kind of lines up that might be at a an implanted memory there but like i do remember just being confused like you know why are these like half naked men wearing boots what, what is going on here and <laughs> uh, trying to trying to get like my, my young head uh, around exactly what it is why there was you know a man dressed like the big boss man uh, involved in a uh, in this weird wrestling sport so yeah that was kind of it for me and it was one of them it was, it was almost like i think you just get swept up in it like like i say it was you know the boom period at least in this country you know running into like SummerSlam 92 where i don't think you know, you'd ever have you'd have a mate at that point if you were my age in school. I would have been old seven um, that didn't like wrestling and you know spent all our days re- wrestling in back gardens and you know breaking into where there'd be like we'd have like na- neighbors in the street who've moved out and there'd be like empty houses and we'd take over the back garden us and like fifteen of other lads mm. from like the different <laughs> the different roads near ours and having like royal rumbles and stuff until we got told off and chased out by the uh, by the other neighbors like it was life really i remember from that period i think my life was wrestling and maybe a bit of footy as well at the same time um but yeah it's kind of that period really and i think the the, the difference with i think people like us is we're the ones who, who don't grow out of it like i can distinctly remember as it got into like 93 94 none of my mates watch watch wrestling anymore like not not one of them but I was the one who was still trying to get to, you know, we didn't have Sky yeah. at the time and um, we didn't have cable. They hadn't come around and uh, cabled our street yet. Remember when that was a big occasion when the uh, the cable fellas had turned up and cabled the street? And that was, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, all of a sudden everyone's, uh, everyone's got it. Um, yeah, like I, I, we never actually got it as a, as younger. So I'd always be begging and stealing and borrowing tape from friends and, like I say, um, as uh, as less and less friends were into wrestling, that got harder and harder. But I think luckily we got Sky in about 96 and, yeah, been a fan right since. And, you know, lived through that second boom period with the Attitude Area where all those same mates came crawling back and liking wrestling again. But, <laughs> no, 
they all disappeared again by uh, by 2001 and again it's the likes of us martin that uh, that stuck with it yeah it's funny isn't it um because um a similar story to you when i was in late primary school all my friends were into it everyone had the figures and stuff and everyone was going to sheffield arena to watch it live and then it sort of went in secondary school and it seemed to be like this underground network of about three people who all still like wrestling you know we'd uh, you know everyone was like oh did you watch uh king of the ring 96 or whatever you know and, and under hushed <laughs> tones and things like that because i think there was one mate who had sky so we used to a couple of us would go around to watch that and then never talk about it in school barely because um you know we didn't want the uh social shame of being uh outed as <laughs> wrestling fans and and, um, but yeah, then I stopped hanging around with them, and then, like you say, that attitude era, and obviously that was hand in hand with uh, heavy metal music, and that's when I started going out clubbing and stuff. So you'd see a lot of uh, DX and Austin 316 T-shirts um, in the uh, Corporation nightclub in Sheffield, which has obviously subsequently become a uh, wrestling venue itself now. And then um, I do remember when I, I lived in York, I knew a guy who was straight edge. And um, I was watching wrestling one night, and he was like, what is this crap? And I was like, oh, look at this guy, CM Punk. And he was like, what? There's a straight-edge wrestler. And I was like, yeah. And then he was instantly, he was always asking me about CM Punk after that. I was like, oh, wow. yeah, this is brilliant. Yeah, so uh, he got into it. I think um, during university, though, he stopped becoming straight-edge, you know, what the lore of, uh, you know, cheap pints and the students' union and stuff became <laughs> too much for him. And um, all these straight-edge mates, like, were disgusted with him. But, um yeah, so other than that, yeah, and then obviously, you know, you get onto Twitter and Facebook and the like and discover there's this whole world of people who've got the exact same story as you, got no friends that are into wrestling, you have this uh, massive community of people, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that's it, um, and that's the, that's the thing, it's like, now, like, like when I was in school, I'd have killed to have, like, so many friends who were into wrestling, um, but as now, it feels like... Like I say, I think well, you can. I suppose as a grown-up, you can uh, you can choose your friends uh, more wisely, can't you? And uh, <laughs> and, uh, and meet people who've got like uh, like similar interests. But like, yeah, I went years with with not knowing anybody was into wrestling, and most of my best friends now are. Um, but I think that's the you know that's the difference in, in the fandom now. We can all we can all find each other despite our, our geeky hardcore interest and yeah i think we uh like i say we uh, like some of us martin who uh who grew up like uh wrestling loners uh did eventually uh, <laughs> find each other um i was gonna say as well i was laughing at that like uh, being uh being straight edge I, I tried going straight edge for about six months when i was 18 um, <laughs> that didn't last <laughs> you know who the influence was people say that gangster rock is a bad, bad influence martin iced tea Always, always rapped about. He never did drink or uh, or did drugs. And I remember like trying to. Uh, I wanted to be like Ice T, um, but that didn't last very long. Once I uh, discovered the uh, the pleasures of a of a nice pint and a night out. But yeah, <laughs> CM Punk was still my hero, but not for that reason. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, Ice T was a uh, Mr. Straight Edge. Yeah, I just assumed that he'd be sort of like rapping about you know how many twenties and stuff that he could See? drink. Like you know everyone everyone else around that time was, weren't they? Like Ice Cube and everybody. I didn't realize Ice T was uh, rapping about the. Uh, the joys of being straight edge <laughs> he was always the one who like he was a gangster rapper and like he'd tell the same stories as the other gangsters would for the first half of the song and then the second half of the song would be like but you probably shouldn't do that because you'll probably end up in jail he was like a public service announcement I think. He, was, uh, <laughs> he was a conscious rapper before that was cool yeah, I love how his uh, biggest hit with his metal band body count was, uh, you know, Cop Killer. But, I, you know, I suppose the newer version of that, he'd be going on about killing cops and then, you know, he'd be, he'd be saying, you know, oh, but maybe don't do that after all. You know, perhaps that's the way he's gone these days. He's in, well, he's actually playing a cop these days, isn't he? On, uh, I think it's a uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. 
following on Twitter as a delight because he gets so much grief for that. Um, and he has to be like, I'm playing, a, I'm, pl- I'm an acting, I'm playing a character, but it is, yeah, it's kind of hard to swallow after uh, all those years. So obviously, you infamously became a wrestler for uh, how long was it? <laughs> cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> cup of years. So what year like was that then? Say a couple of years. Um, what year, was that your peak ROH fandom, or did you start looking around at local wrestling schools when you were still watching Attitude or WWE and the like? Um, yeah, I was during like like I was you know on record as being the biggest ROH fan in the world from like 2004 to about 2007 or so, uh, maybe 2008, um, and like you know I, I was that guy you'd spend all kinds of money to to travel out to America to go to Ring of Honor shows and such and then I started going to like local shows out in the UK and I think I think we've all as like fans all had that moment where it's like you know I'm following this stuff I'm following it closely all, all I do in my life is, is wrestling maybe I could give it a try and yeah I had that that same kind of moment in a, in, in 2006 I went to a, a GPW show uh, in Wigan um, and it was good it was one of those where it was like my because I was into like hardcore, into Ring of Honor, and into my like smart marky type stuff, I just imagined British wrestling to be a certain way. I, you know, skinny lads with long hair like Robbie Brookside, um, having rounds matches um, in front of bored children. That was kind of my impression of what <laughs> press was. You know, obviously there was the exceptions like uh, like FWA. I was a uh, a course aware of, but that was kind of my thought of it on a local level. And I went to one of their shows, and it was like a refreshing really like gpw were a bit ahead of the time they had like a you know for the time a really cool presentation big big screen um they had lots of like lots of colorful characters so don't get me wrong it was a, a family-friendly show but you know the wrestling style was you know not you know hugely di- different from you know like the the super indie stuff i liked if, if maybe a much much lower level so mm-hmm. like i think the, the first match i saw on one of their shows had the wkd on it which was uh matt richards the the progress ring announcer and uh, and cj banks uh, who was c juice at the time so was he Basically, was he named after wicked does in the wicked bottle of of alcohol yeah right. that was the group wicked <laughs> wkd yeah because they, they wanted to be like they literally just ripped off special k which was like a group of clubbers in a in ring of honor who wore, wore baggy pleathers and did flips so i think they thought they could be like the the british equivalent uh, Matty's name at the time was Delirium, which uh, he won't like me a bit on air, but he was uh, he stole that off somebody on a forum, um, the, uh, the the TW <laughs> forum actually uh, of all places. Uh, the name Delirium, um, but yeah, that's what they did, and that they like again they weren't particularly good, but they were very they were you know like the special K I'd seen in Ringo Honor. I was like, oh, these guys are watching the same stuff I am, and I, I, honestly that that made me think, you know what, maybe I could do this. I don't know if that's a high high praise to a. Uh, to Matty that uh, I saw him wrestle and thought I could do this too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, kind of watched that show. You know, like I say, there was a moment in the main event where uh, Heresy, who was like the head trainer at GPW and like the, the top heel, who was, you know, um, a bit of a, a Raven-like character in the main event. He was he was, he was circling the, the ring and I was, I was sat front row at this point because I got so into the show. Um, and like I was giving him grief because he was like the top heel, not knowing who he was. And he came over and he pushed me. And like push me down to my seat, which I don't think you can get away with these days. Um, oh no, 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 no! <laughs> but like in the moment he did that, I just remember thinking, "Oh, I'm part of the show. This is so cool!" Like, bear in mind, I'm like 22 at this point. I'm not like I'm 16. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm like, "Oh yeah, definitely. I'm, I've made my mind up now. I'm gonna go to training." So I, after the show, uh, like part of the reason I'd gone as well as I'd seen uh, someone who's like one of my best mates now, Gary, um, who wrestled as Jiggy Walker in that period. He was 
another reason I'd gone to the show. He was doing a, a scouse thug kind of gimmick, which I thought was the coolest thing in the world. Um, he was dressed up in like baggy red uh, plebers with like uh, you know the live bird on. Um, at one point, I think he did a mask gimmick as the live bird, but he was like that, you know, that scouse thug who will steal your th- hope caps and was like one of like the lower card heels for the territory. Mm. Part of the reason I'd gone was because I'd seen a photo of him and thought, that's so cool. That's what I want to do if I'm a wrestler. I'll be like a shaved head scouse thug just like him. Um, and then on my train home from the show, he was on the train. So like I obviously maneuvered myself so I'd be in the, mm. uh, the same train carriage as him. Um, I made sure that <laughs> I could. Uh, I was like, oh, were you that wrestler that was on the show earlier today? Like, knowing full well, yes, he was. And then got <laughs> chatting to him and it was, uh, it was him that kind of... Uh, was like ah you know what it's actually it's not that hard this wrestling stuff just come down to train and we'll uh we'll show you you'll show you the ropes and uh yeah he managed to uh to talk me into it and yeah a couple of months later i was uh there in manchester uh training with gpw that's pretty lucky that though because a lot of uh british wrestlers you hear about sort of like when they were looking at wrestling training and this is sort of like you know i know the internet's been around for yonks and yonks but this was before you know i suppose internet forums were around and stuff but before you could access you know knowing where wrestling schools are and stuff. And a lot of them said the only wrestling school they'd heard of was uh, Hammerlock because of that being advertised in Power Slam magazine and the like. Um, and obviously that was all the way down in Kent. So I suppose you were pretty lucky having one on, on you. Well, I suppose Wigan, you know, it's still a bit of a drive or a train journey away, but pretty lucky having one on your doorstep, so to speak. Oh, totally. And I was, you know, like a lot of other people, I did that same thing where you saw like the, the Hammerlock had in the in the back of Power Slam and thought, oh, I could go do that. You know, tried to talk one of my mates at one point into to going down and you know doing one of like the weekend camps or something like that. Or it never really uh, never came to fruition. And yeah, to be honest, you know, GPW were they were running Wigan, but the training school was uh, in Manchester, not far from Manchester Piccadilly. Um, so they were training there. But there was also you know Future Shock as well. You know, not far away also, but there training school in uh in manchester as well and it was you know, typical brit res one of those things where you know there was always like a an unease between the two camps there was like a <laughs> a bit of unity because you get a lot of the same wrestlers on both shows and like everyone kind of knew each other but there was still always that thing of like you know well they're running in the same area so you know there was always politics about who you trained with and you know which school you uh you should you should be at um it's so, always yeah. hilarious that stuff isn't it because it's like you're all fighting over about 100 people it reminds oh, me of the chris rocks sketch when he said you know when someone comes home and she's like she's trying to ruin me and he's like what you wrap bags in jc penny how can she be ruining you you know and, <laughs> and it's like you know all these these rivalries in politics and it's like you're just fighting over the same 100 to 200 people you know it's not like your worldwide <laughs> organizations or anything they still do it now honestly like posters getting ripped down and you know people yeah, yeah, there was a bit of I remember there was a bit of a kickoff a couple of years ago about a new promotion trying to run like the the Wigan area and you know people's nose getting pushed out. It's like I mean we've got the internet, lot of lads. Come on, calm down. It's like it's not no. <laughs> it's it's not that serious. Um, but yeah, it, it was always like that. There's just, there's always kind of like that that territorial war. Which to be honest, I kind of get it a little bit though. Like if you're like you know running a professional outfit in say mm. a Wigan and then you know a bunch of chances with a ring turn up um and you know run the same venue or run the venue down the road uh, you know it can give it, it can give wrestling a bad rap can't it uh, i think and can cause trouble but um no it was like i say it was like a bit of a, a glory i think like an unknown glory period i think people look at like you know, look at like the, the history of brit res and we've talked about it on the, the main bwe show you know we talk about like you know things uh, dying off after the uh, the 80s and uh, and 90s with world of sports and we talk about kind of the dead 
zone that kind of replaced there. And then you talk about FWA and you know everything that that they did um, in the in the the early two thousands. But you know up up in the northwest, I can definitely say you know there were promotions like GCW, uh, GPW and uh, and Future Shark and later PCW who you know were a big part of like creating like you know a product that you weren't afraid to you know ashamed to go to you know a, a repeat product with you know with repeat fans you know it wasn't just like an all-star where they turn up you know sell all of the phone figures burn out the territory with a terrible show and then not come back for another year you know promotions that were coming back month on month and places that you know wrestlers like a you know a chris travis and you know other people are you know around that um kind of that era could all could all kind of work together and you know joey hayes and the like and, and get better and better um you know i think it was a big part of like what helped lay the groundwork for you know your progresses and your icws and i like to come along in the uh the early 2000s and and you know scoop up a lot of that talent yeah it's funny because i even um i think it must have been like 20 years ago or something now i'm really aging myself now um <laughs> i think i'd been reading dynamite kids book and obviously a large part of that is him talking about the snake pit in wigan and how you know it was you know as, as harsh and horrible as it was you know it was real sort of like character building and stuff and I'd seen mm-hmm. a poster. Um, I think they still do wrestling training today. Um, this place in in Hillsborough called the Three Six Three Club, and they have done wrestling training for youngs. And I was considering going to that in two thousand and one. I think I spent a, a weekend looking into it, and I even went down and had a look round, and someone was doing a karate tournament or something in there. And I was like, "Oh nah, this ain't gonna be for me. I don't <laughs> think so." Yeah, that was my um, that was my whole experience of it. Tell you. That's how you think of it, isn't it? Like, like I, I do remember having that thought that that's what it would be like. It'd be like a, a big, fat, hairy, scary man who'd like, you know, want to break your back or, you know, <laughs> would want to scare you off a of wrestling and not make you want to come back. I think I got lucky in that, like, that mid-2000s period. Like, it was where fans like me started to take over a little bit. And it was, you know, that period where it wasn't just like, you know, miserable old men who, you know, were still on the dole who, you know, did all star for 25 quid at a weekend. It was more like fans like the likes of us who were into their indies and into, you know, their, their proper workers like a Kurt Angle and, and then Chris Benoit and those types of guys. And, you know, it, it wasn't so much like that. Don't get me wrong. There were definitely still uh, incidents that you'd, uh, you'd see in training where, you know, people uh wrestling is wrestling um and you know the, the bullying culture of wrestling was definitely uh even alive and well uh back then but definitely a, a friendlier uh environment than it would have been yeah if i had tried to get into wrestling a few years earlier i think i just wanted to learn how to do a front face lock because <laughs> every, every wrestler always says in the book that's an instant end if anyone comes at you in the street that's an instantaneous end to a fight and then my brother was doing a mma for a while and uh, he tried showing me how to do it, and I just couldn't get my head around it. And uh, we, I think I ended up with a, I think I ended up with a busted nose, and I had to go to work. And they were like, "What's been happening to you?" And I was like, "Oh, me and my brother were just having um, a mixed martial art tussle in the garage." And they were like, "Aren't you twenty? Aren't you twenty-five? <laughs> oh fucking hell! Yeah, oh, sorry, exactly. I'll swear again. Sorry. Oh, don't, <laughs> exactly. I don't worry about it. It's um, only been half an hour. I've sworn twice. Sorry to the chair. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that'd be, I that'd be a booking offense normally, but um, you, you're helping <laughs> not, me out all day, so. <laughs> not wages, mate. Um, but yeah, like I, that's how you know I expected it to be. So like going into into training with GPW, my thought was, yeah, I was going to get there, and it was going to be, you know, they're going to be either working you or trying to trying to get you out the business immediately, and it was going to be like the the hardest thing you ever did. But first few weeks of my training, you know, they were just 
I was kind of the only new student. Um, it was me, and then other people would turn up for the training. And, you know, I thought, because I thought this was going to be the hardest thing I'll ever do in my life, I spent, you know, the the few months before that, you know, or maybe the two months before that, you know, nailing the gym, making sure kind of I got my cardio up and thinking, you know, they were going to absolutely kill me. It was going to be bump drills and all kinds. And don't get me wrong, there was some of that. But to be honest, I found it fun. You know, it was going in there and it was like, oh, this is like, this is like flashing back to the early 90s where I was playing wrestling, you know, we made back garden. You know, we'd obviously we'd have the hard drills and stuff and, you know, we'd be trying to, don't get me wrong, I didn't I didn't take to it either particularly quickly. I'm not a, a particularly athletic person. So, you know, I, I struggled with, you know, a lot of the, the intricacies of like technical wrestling and the like. But, you know, it was while it was hard work, you know, at the end of every training session, there'd always be, like, be matches and it would be, you know, whether you, you know, even at my low level where I wasn't particularly good at it yet, it was fun, you know, to get in there with people and, you know, play with the crash mats and try and come up with, you know, finishes and come up with like different moves and trial, you know, different moves on, on different trainees. But, you know, we had a lot of people who kind of came to go, came and gone in those first few weeks who just found it too hard or just didn't, you know, it wasn't what they, they kind of expected. And yeah, to me, I was like, what did you expect? This is, this is what I always, you know, pictured wrestling was going to be like but yeah for me you know i i've I, I got to be honest like i i think i i thought like i had a good brain for the wrestling world and i kind of mm. understood you know how you know maybe a match should be laid out and you know being like a hardcore ring of honor fan i thought i knew what like good work was but i did struggle definitely you know physically um in in the first first few weeks or so um even though i you know practiced bumping on on my dad's bed at home it wasn't quite the same <laughs> when it came to trying to uh, do it in front of people but you know it was uh, like i say it was fun if hard work and you know over over time it does get a bit you know, we it was basically every uh, every Sunday at this uh, this gym in Manchester. You know, traveling the two hours each way to go there for for four hours and uh, and beat your body up is a, uh, you know, it's still it's still hard. But I don't know if I found it as as hard as you know I thought it would be, and I don't think I found it as hard as maybe you know some of the, the other trainees who kind of turned up around that time. So yeah, it was a it was definitely a different experience than maybe I expected going in. Well, um, so in terms of like when you took your first bump in an actual ring, was that like concrete? I always imagine all like Brit wrestler rings are like rock hard. No, to be honest, GPW like they had. I think that the I think I think the building was called Salas or Salas in in Manchester, um, and what it was was you know you can't tell a Brit rest story without Alex Shane, but <laughs> Alex Shane, <laughs> who I know, I think he'd been like a GPW champion earlier in the, in the, in the, in their run when they were trying to do stuff with the FWA. And he'd done a lot with, uh, with future shock as well. When there was a bit of crossover, he was nowhere to be seen by the time I, you know, came into training, but apparently he had this basically, basically had this, you know, 16 by 16 full size WWE ring that he had in this gym. And the thing about it was, it was actually padded. It had um, like uh, supposedly a gym mat, really, um, underneath, like you know, above the wood on the canvas that made it actually a really soft, nice ring to bump in. It was this, like I say, at the time, a lot of promotions were running with rubbish, you know, old school, all star type, you know, tiny, tiny rings, like you know, those converted boxing rings. And oh, this yeah, amazing, yeah. like full size, could have been a WWE ring, was in this gym in Manchester. And the reason 
GPW were able to use it is because Alex Shane couldn't get it back down the stairs in the gym that it was in. They couldn't find a way to get it out. It was just trapped in this gym. And I always used to say That's that. That's typical like, Brit wrestler, isn't it? Oh, yeah, he just ended up staying there. I think there's a similar story in the 1PW book about how um, 1PW had bought this, like, WWF-style, like, size ring. And yeah. um, I, I think someone had transported it somewhere and it just got left out in the snow during the winter, so it was absolutely fucked by the time they wanted to use it again because nobody could be asked <laughs> to shift it inside. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think Alex Shane wanted money for it as well. And, like, the GPW lads were just like, well, no, you can't get it back, so we're just going to use it. Like, what are you going to do? Come and take it home? You can't. Um, so they just continued to use it. And it was honestly the best. That's maybe why I say, like, as, as, as hard as training was and as, you know, again, I wasn't the best at it. It wasn't as tough as I thought because they had that lovely ring. And, you know, while it still would beat you down after a few hours of bumping in it, like it, it was the, probably the best possible experience, you know, for rather than like I, I went to other training schools and they'd have like, you know, a proper ring. And, you know, after a couple of bump drills, you'd, you'd really be feeling it. This was a bit of a dream, um, to be honest, the trade, training. And if anything, I probably found the hardest thing was hitting the ropes. Like that's something people don't tell you. Um, like I think it... Like, especially with the, I think they were cable ropes that they had on that one, you know, like WCW style. And like those, doing a few rope drills, running the ropes and, you know, them hitting you, you know, in the back and the, you know, the, th the three different spots, that probably hurt more than the bumps. Like it takes a, probably takes a, what it, it does in fact take a while for your, your body to, to get used to that. Um, yeah, I almost, I think to be honest, I found that harder than, than actually bumping in the ring. Oh, wow, yeah, because obviously um, it is funny when you see celebrities on, on Raw or whatever, you know, when they used to do the celeb you know a lot of celebrity tie-ins and, and they used to try and run the ropes and apparently that used to piss all the wrestlers off, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. And like, and that is, that's a skill in itself, you know, learning to run the ropes and getting your footwork correct and, and all of that. I remember freeze-framing a, a video, I think, of Booker T um, on, on a SmackDown trying to figure out where he uh, exactly put his steps to uh, to get my rope running right. Um, it was My rope running wasn't the best, but... Um, you know, well, I think all that's the thing with rope run. All wrestlers have got like different ideas of it. I remember hearing stories in my training about how Jerry Lynn had came to the school once, and remember that weird way Jerry Lynn used to run the ropes where he'd like grab hold of the second rope yeah. as he hit them. Like, do you know why that was? Because the way he was trained was that the you know you could be working a, a rubbish indie somewhere, and the ropes could break at any time. So he would grab that second rope as like an oh, instinct, wow. <laughs> just in case the ropes went. And that makes sense. But you think of it, and you think, Jerry, you work in WCW and ECW and TNA and, you know, like, relatively, you know, big promotions. Is it really worth your rope running, looking rubbish just for the, the possible <laughs> chance that you might come through the ropes? But, yeah, a lot of my mates at the time told me that story that like, uh, you, said, you said to them, you know, you, you don't want to fall out that ring and break your neck, kid. So make sure you, you run the ropes like me and, uh, and grab them. And that was a nice little uh, insider uh, thing I had. Can you imagine, though, some of the indies uh, Jerry Lynn probably worked in his career and uh, all over the States and stuff? Because it's not like it is sort of like, well, maybe not even nowadays, but a couple of years ago mm -hmm. where there were all these super indies uh, shotting up. I mean, was there that um, promotion he used to work in California with a uh, one, two, three kid and there were all those like blow away matches and they were like tape traders dreams because everyone was after those. I remember uh, Power Slam reviewing a couple. So you can imagine that he worked a lot of sort of like shindy places where the rings weren't set up properly. I can totally imagine that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's horror stories of, like, yeah, you know, shows with, without a ring or shows, with, like, say, with those boxing rings or, you know, stuff like that. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, with the uh, with the indies. Uh, you never know what you're going to get. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I, I was definitely definitely lucky on the GPW side. You know, we had a had a, a nice setup, um, and you know, it was it was only when you know I started doing actual shows where I think I found out really what a real ring felt like when you when you bump and yeah, what it what it actually felt like to uh, to hit the ropes <laughs> on a on a proper show and uh, and such. But yeah, I'd probably say I had it, I had it quite easy compared to uh, some guys from the past. Yeah, my other sort of like in when I was gonna try and get into wrestling was when sort of like uh, was it like 2012 when everyone started you know when wrestling all these promotions started propping up around England. I, I had like a bit of a background making corporate videos and stuff and doing short films, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll go and see if a wrestling uh, company wants me my services in like videoing their events and stuff. And then I was th- actually thinking about it, I was like, no, that this looks like the biggest nightmare, and I'll probably get paid about a tenner for it. Yeah, that's it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. At best, a tenner. I think the most I ever got paid was uh, was a DVD, and that was for ring announcer, not even wrestling. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That's, that's how I ended up starting as well, because like when I was um, training, you know, there was a point I think where GPW had run through like three or four ring announcers, and uh, the other remember there was a the lad called Luke who was on Big Brother, so he's like a bit of a local celebrity. He ended up. Uh, kind yeah, of I think being, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, he, he was he done. Um, a lot of uh, stuff for like some of the the shindy uh, promotions in like the the Wigan area, being like their general manager and stuff. Luke Marsden, um, and he had, he wasn't quite on the scene yet at that point, but he was like their regular ring announcer. But at that point, they were really struggling for someone. And I just remember it being at, the, at training, and you know, you're, you're desperately wanting to make any possible you know opportunity yours. And they were, I heard them talking about needing a ring announcer, and I managed to con them into the fact. I was like, oh no, I I could be a ring announcer. Yeah, I'm really I, I do. I do loads of speeches at work, and yeah, I'm I'm really good at like talking in front of just making stuff up, being like, oh yeah, I, when I was in college, not that I ever went to college, I used to do a lot of like yeah, live readings and things, and that I'll, I'll be great in front of a crowd and managing to con my way into that. But yeah, that was uh, that was that was an experience in itself. To be honest, that was uh, I think I think with 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 training wrestling, like that's uh, those types of jobs are good, you know, uh, to, mm. to be. You know, to referee or to ring announce or even to do like I did some camera work as well because it's like it's experience of being in front of a crowd without you know standing there in your undies and and actually wrestling um but like that was that was kind of my first experience in front of a crowd and you know like like everyone else would be I was a uh, stood I didn't even have a suit Martin I had like a, a shit a bet my best possible as the George tie-in shirt that I thought I looked really smart <laughs> in um out there yeah you can actually if you if you anyone ever watches the uh the video i think it's friday night thriller from gpw in 2006 not that i imagine anyone's going to go back and watch it but there's like in the footage when you see me come out i've got like a bit of paper in my hand with with my notes because you know i didn't know what i was doing um and you can literally see that the the piece of paper in my hand shaking because i'm that nervous uh in front of the crowd and i think i was supposed to uh introduce introduce everybody to the uh the monocle monaco ballroom in hindley and i said i think i called it the, the hanako hall room in hindley or something like that i was <laughs> That that nervous uh, announced a a, a very young uh, at that time Spud um, on the show, or, and I say announced that uh, that was one where he made his entrance, got into the ring, and I was so nervous I just forgot to uh, to announce him. Uh, and one of the other wrestlers <laughs> had to nudge me and go, "Are you going to introduce Spud at any point?" Um, to say it didn't go well is uh, <laughs> probably to say the least. Did he blow um, up? But... Did he blow up at you after like for missing his intro? He was sound, you know. He was all right. He actually came. I forgot. I forgot about this. He actually came out and did the uh, the raffle with me at halftime. The raffle in which, again, unprepared Benno didn't actually know what the prizes were for. So I was just. <laughs> I, I do remember asking Spud, "Has anyone told you what the prizes were?" And he was like, "No, that's your job." And I was like, "Oh, okay then." Uh, so I just announced that his first prize, second prize, and third prize all to actually what, say what, what were the actual were. prizes? Was it like um, a meat raffle? If it was, if I know GPW, it would have been 
almost always it was like a i think third prize was like a tin of roses uh i think second <laughs> I prize was like a like a tombola at, at your work oh yeah place. hey in wigan those things weren't like hotcakes you know they were uh, they were bang into that um yeah i think that was like the that was third prize second prize would always be like tickets and i think first prize would have been they used to sell because the, again they were ahead of the time selling dvds of, of all of their shows it was mm. like a a year's worth of dvds or something like that but yeah, uh, me, neither me nor Spud um, knew what that was. So that was an awkward moment. Um, yeah, that was like, I did two shows ringing out and I did that one, which, yeah, wasn't the best. And then there was like a, a charity show um like a month later where again they were they were stuck for a ring announcer and i say charity show what charity show meant in the mid 2000s and it probably means it now is somebody wants to book a show and they want everyone to work for free um <laughs> and that's what it was and there was a, a gpw uh, trainee called the butcher who uh who, who wanted to book his, his, his own show um didn't do any advertising for it didn't do any postering for it six people turned up martin so i was stood there in, in the ring ring announcing with a microphone in my hand to six people in a crowd like we had a we had a battle wow. royal on that show. we had a battle royal on that show that probably had like three or four times as many people in the ring as there were in the stands like i might as well <laughs> have just thrown the mic down and just spoke to each person individually and just went no oh, just by the way yeah coming down the aisle now um it's heresy yeah he's uh he weighs up this uh, just to let you know like it probably would have been a, a better thing but yeah luckily they only used me for uh for two shows for the ring announcing it didn't uh, didn't last any longer than that I think every sort of British wrestler of um, a certain age has got that a story of them turning up to a show and there being um, two or three people <laughs> there, or or doing it in a working men's club where they're the background entertainment and no one really cares. They're just waiting for the bingo to start. Oh, definitely, yeah. Like, not that the wrestlers didn't take it seriously. There was like a. I'm a did you ever see Sabotage? He was like a British wrestler who like dressed like the Undertaker. Um, no, it's not ringing any bells now. He would have done like one PW, and the like I imagine, like early on. Maybe. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the, match the British the wrestlers in one PW were chucked into um, a battle royal at the start of the show, so there was a lot of them <laughs> all in one the place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just remember him taking it really seriously, and like the the referee um, Matt Kev messed up like a finish in his match and again we're in front of like six people. If two people go to the mm. toilet, four people are watching you, and like he screwed up the finish. And it was a scary moment, to be honest, because he, he basically counted the fall when it was a near fall. And I was like on ring announcing. So I kind of and I was in charge of the bell as well, which is also an important job. So I had to ring the bell. I was like, I can't Montreal screw job this. I'll have to ring it and, uh, and announce <laughs> this is the finish. And he was fuming. He wants to kill people. And I remember just being there being like, dude, there's six people here. Like, who cares? Mm. <laughs> who cares that this is uh, this has gone wrong? But, you know, they're all going to report the... about it on the UKFF. Perhaps that's what he's worried about. <laughs> Maybe. That, well, that was that was important. mate. Yeah. What, what the uh, what the the fans obviously i was one of those fans on the uk fan forum like even during this period being the one right in the gpw review so i was hardly uh hardly neutral um but yeah i was gonna say for, for my uh talking about yeah getting paid a, a tenner for, for wrestling shows for my uh because i'd read a lot of wrestling books i'd read at the time that well make sure you get paid kid even when you even when you, you're young in the business mm. and you know you, you don't don't work for anyone for free and i've been promised a, uh, a GPW DVD as payment for my uh, my first referee and uh, experience, and I made sure I got that DVD. But I don't think the uh, the promoter of GPW was happy that I I insisted and insisted that I got paid for that with that DVD until the end because that weekend they had uh, they had training at GPW, and because they had been a particularly good house at the show, he gave everybody free training except for me, and he singled me out. I was like, Benno, you already got paid in your DVD, so tenor please and made me pay so yeah i learned uh lessons uh even early on there in my uh my wrestling career 
that's hilarious. Uh, there are stories as well, aren't there? Um, I can't remember which book I read it in, but where um, wrestlers haven't got paid, so they've literally marched out to the uh, merch desk and just swiped like a massive handful of DVDs. And <laughs> fair play to them if they've gone back and they've gone, oh, money's a bit tight now. And it's like, oh, well, I'll just take this in uh, in payment. Thank you. You've, you've just reminded me like that, that, you know, that second one I did the ring answer where there was six people there, that promoter, Butcher. I, I do distinctly remember him talking to the guy who brought the ring. Like, I could just hear him in the corner going, uh, mate, do do you say card? And the guy was like, no, no, I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that was a, a long walk to the cash machine. There's been many. Oh, there, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so how many sort of like actual matches did you have then? Obviously you've talked about your ring announcing and stuff like that. Well, how many um, sort of like, obviously your infamous, um, what was it? 11 seconds in the rumble, but did you have any sort of like <laughs> singles or tags matches and things like that? Yeah, well, like, like my cage, I like, I like saying this, Martin, my cage match has a, a couple of my matches on it. Um, I'm a wrestling database profile. That's my favorite one. It's got a nice little picture of me, and it says uh, says a couple of my moves. I leg lariats, which was one of the only things I could do well. Um, but it's kind of <laughs> cool. It's been documented, and it's, uh, it's on the internet, what I do. Um, a couple of them were on there, but, yeah, like for me, I, I started out the first show that I did. I did a squash match, uh, where I, and I was only, like, three or four months into training. Um, this was in January 2007 against, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Fear at all. They were doing the, the year of fear. They were giving him a Goldberg-esque push. Um, so I was the uh, the chosen jobber to to go out there first. Was and, he uh, a big I'm, lad, that, I take um, it? Pretty big. Like He became bigger than he was at the mm. time. He was more... If you, if anybody listening knows Johnny Fear, he was, a, he was a bit of a scary dude. So he's like intense, you know what I mean? Um, right. But yeah, I remember like, that was my first match. I was like his uh, his first victim, and you know I took it very seriously. You know, went went to my local sunbed shop, got got a got a, a lobster pink tan. Um, I was pretty <laughs> much completely bent up, to be honest. I uh, I pushed it too far. Put my tiny blue trunks on and kick pads, and rolled up my uh, my wrist tape like like CM Punk because I, I wanted to. Uh, at that time, thought I could be the uh, the scout CM Punk. Didn't uh, didn't quite work out for me. That was a sidebar. Uh, Where did you get your gear from? I imagine it was quite tricky to get some actual wrestling gear back then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was eBay. Um, like people would buy stuff off high spots and the like because you could um import stuff and they had like the i think their stores may, might even still be there with with different bits of gear on it um but yeah i just found found the trunks on on ebay they were just a generic pair of blue ones with like tribal print it was all the uh, all the rage in the mid 2000s i'm telling you <laughs> i think i got like me knee pads from high spots and maybe my kick pads as well and i think i just found like a local sports shop that had like sports tape and the like so i could do my uh my best cm punk impression um at, at one point i did get some gear made by a head diva which i think still makes gear now um, and made, made custom but no you're right it was a bit of a a different uh experience back then but the way the way possibilities but no i wanted to look my uh, my absolute best i definitely didn't have uh the body to uh to pull off a pair of tiny trunks but <laughs> you know at that point in the mid 2000s you know what was uh what was johnny a signing in the wwe it was lads in tiny trunks so i thought that yeah. was the uh that was the way forward um, he wasn't signing lads in uh pleather trousers or shorts was he yeah, that's it. You know, it wasn't like the, the you know, the, the accepted look, I suppose, at that point. So I was uh, trying to be a professional, um, as professional as you can be when your name is Easy Ernie Benson, um, which was my uh, my name for my, my first match. We were trying to think of a funny name at the time. The wire wasn't that big. It was like only in like first couple of seasons or mm -hmm. it may be a dead in America. But like, you know, we weren't aware of it over here. So my original name was Jumping Jimmy McNulty. Which could have gone down in uh, it, it, it <laughs> could have gone down in flames, or could have been uh, yeah, you know, well regarded. That would have been a brilliant name, brilliant name. <laughs> who 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 nicked that one? Was that yourself or someone else? 
Well, that was me. I just thought I wanted like a, a like a proper jobber name. Like I was thinking, I know he wasn't a full jobber, but like a jumping Jim Brunzel, that type of uh, thing. Yeah, and like just a thought, Jack Stars three Zs. Yeah, that's it. And you know, uh, Gary was my best mate at the time. Was was Jiggy Walker, which was you know, I say he did like a Scouse thug gimmick. If that name rings a bell, it was LL Cool J's character in um, in Oz. Um, so I wanted to. <laughs> if you Google Jiggy Walker, you get half pictures of a a Scouse wrestler and half pictures of LL Cool J. It's quite cool. Um, but I think I was trying to do my version of it with uh, with Jimmy McNulty, but it wasn't greenlit, unfortunately. So yeah, we went with uh, Easy Ernie Benson, which was a uh, yeah. Ernest is my middle name, so it was a uh, making use of that. Um, that would be yeah, hilarious that... if LL Cool J ever um, Googles any of his old characters and, you know, <laughs> who, <is laughs> like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Scary Scouse lad in pleather shorts. Like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, um, like, for for me, yeah, I, I really like the match. Like, it's on YouTube and it's me getting squashed in about 30 seconds. You know, I remember at the time thinking it really cool that Johnny Fear let me, I think he let me hit him on the back. Like, it was one of them. Start of the match, ran, clubbed him on the back. And then he battered me for the entire rest of it, including a, a knee in the corner that I can still taste now. Uh, <laughs> but I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But put me up for his finisher, which was this stupid whaley bear DDT thing, where it was like a razor's edge turned into a DDT. Took that right on the top of my head because I've uh, been watching my ROH tapes. Um, and yeah, it kind of, you know, for a 30 second squash, it, it, it went to... Uh, it went pretty well. Um, but yeah, that's awesome, though. Was this also around the same time period where in every match you'd see a Canadian destroyer as well? It hadn't quite hit Vogue yet. It was like a couple of years, like Petey Williams had kind of, you know, obviously, there was still Petey Williams move really at that point. Mm. So other people weren't so much using it. I do remember trying it and training and failing miserably. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it wasn't, uh, wasn't quite in Vogue yet. Um, but yeah, like I, that was kind of my first match. And then I did like a, a like a, a what we called an Alaskan tag match, which was a handicap match against, uh, it was me and, uh, and George Dougal against the, the Juggernaut, who was, uh, I'd say famous, but he played Raul Moat in an ITV special once. And um, that was uh, that was his height of, uh, of fame after his uh, post-wrestling career. And I bet he's dined out on that story, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%. Kebab yeah, shops up and down the land. Did, uh, <laughs> didn't you play Raul Moat on ITV? <laughs> that's it yeah he's uh you know i'm sure he uh, gets recognized all the time um but yeah that was that was kind of my, my second match and that one was one where like you know we i was kind of proud of that one because we kind of put that match together ourselves and I had a couple of hope spots in there that sent the crowd miles with a with a nice uh nice couple of leg lariats in there before uh inevitably getting getting squashed his finish he was a monster in the wigan area um and they, they made that i think they made out that he'd been uh locked up in like a some kind of prison um for years and had, had come out to uh to terrorize the uh, the local wigan area and of course it's been law um because you know the claw will always get over and i talked him being the super indie fan managed to talk him into a doing a, a claw breaker like a choke slam into a into a into a like a knee breaker type thing and that was the uh, the finish in that one um where I got battered there. That was the one where, if anyone's ever seen any uh, any footage of me wrestling, that's very much the match where I I'm entirely dressed head to toe like CM Punk. Like I've got you know, the the wrist tape on. I've got you know the black and red striped shorts. I am literally um, CM Punk uh, in that moment, uh, which uh, I got a bit of bit of grief uh, for backstage by uh, a wrestler who uh, does not deserve naming at this point. But uh, I was just trying to be like my idol, um, as was he, and completely ripping off El Generico. But what are you going to do? Um, but, yeah, anyway. <laughs> You can guess who that is. Shots fired. <laughs> I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm shooting from a relatively safe house at this point, I think. Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that was... Did you so ever consider getting the tattoos as well? 
Any <laughs> tattoos? I don't mean the <laughs> same ones as CM Punk, but any tattoos uh, did you ever consider? Because you haven't got any tattoos, have you? No, why did I think I could get, a, get away with dressing like CM Punk when, yeah, I was like the least tattooed pale ginger dude in, in the world? Why did I think that was going <laughs> to be In my defense, Punk hadn't quite broke through on WWE TV yet. I think he was still doing the ECW stuff. So, you know, it wasn't as obvious as, as, it, as it looks in hindsight, but... No, I did consider at one point getting like a chest tattoo that said rest pro wrestler wrestler or something like that on it. So oh glad I didn't do that. <laughs> I could have gone with my, uh, at one point in my life, I wanted a, a Wu-Tang logo tattoo um, on my arm. It could have uh, could have fit in perfectly with that. Um, thank God I didn't do that. Oh God. Uh. Yeah, when we were at, when we were at school, me I was like listening to metal on the quiet, and then me and all my mates were listening to like Tupac and, and B.I.G. And me and all my mates were like, oh, I can't wait till I'm older so I can get thug life tattooed on my chest. <laughs> Oh, I can just imagine you. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, you know, we grew up. We grew up from uh, the age of fourteen. Decided that would be a very bad idea and also quite an offensive one. So yeah. But um, yeah, wasn't that Zach, didn't Zach Gibson do a bit of a tribute to? Uh, we'll, we'll be kind and say it's a tribute to CM Punk as well. And he said, well, did you encounter him around sort of like the uh, northern wrestling scene? No, he was doing like. What I, what I would have called, you know, they were like the GVW enemy promotions, like the the Shindies, the the twenty one CW popped up for a while, and I think he was involved quite heavily with uh, with Runcorn Runcorn Wrestling Association. But I'd always hear stories about like this other young Scouse lad who also dressed a lot like CM Punk, <laughs> and he was like he was full like indie CM Punk with like baggy baggy shorts and long hair, like you wouldn't mm. imagine. The Zach Gibson that uh, that that's wound up on it on NXT TV, but believe me, he was like he yeah he literally had match of the night written on his trunks, Martin. That's how much of like a that kind of work rate wrestler he was trying to be at that point. Don't don't believe him when he pretends to be this uh, this grizzled uh, young veteran these days. That was uh that was where he came from. But yeah, I'd always hear stories about him. Like uh, people are like, oh you you and him get on great because yeah, he, he loves CM Punk too, and he's also a scouser and he's also ripping off all the CM Punk stuff, but. No, uh, we never really encountered each other. Like I've you know, met him a handful of times over the years and, you know, kind of vaguely we know who each other are. But yeah, it was weird. It was kind of like we were in a, in different, uh, different circles at that time. He was obviously much better than me. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so come on, Benno. Did you, were you ever asked on um, a Saturday morning to go around town pulling posters down or uh, ringing in threats to uh, local venues? <laughs> we had some of that. Like, yeah, I mean, we, we'd have... Um, I mean that that would more happen. I think all the promotions doing it to to us. Like I do right. remember, like the, the people would like ring the venue and say, you know, GPW didn't have the right insurance or make up incidents that happened at a show, things like that. There was like dirty tactics, you know. I do remember, um, you know, well a lot of the flyer and stuff. Like we literally, I mean, we go door to door and put flyers through people's doors in the Wigan area every every Saturday afternoon. That was part of, you know, paying your dues as a as a trainee and doing that. And sometimes the the people would literally open the door and just throw them right back out, out at you. Um, just fair <laughs> enough, you know. Who wants a who wants a wrestling flyer? But it it was. It was very like, you know, boots of the ground style where yeah, you know, putting putting those flyers through doors and putting posters in the the local Wigan takeaways was important. And if yeah, some yeah. private promoter came along and started ripping them down and such you know could cost you three or four tickets martin so you know that's 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 big business um in, in those days 
So, sort of like, you know, you had you had a few matches and you were sort of like channeling CM Punk and obviously feeling good about it and stuff. But yeah. why did it sort of like channel off for you? Did you just, were you just tired of traveling around on, on weekends and like, did you discover other things or were you just like, oh, I'm just going to go, start going out with my mates rather than getting up early on a Saturday morning and stuff? It's weird because, you know, absolutely, you know, at the start, I was absolutely loving it. You know, I mentioned the squat quash matches I happened and I had, and they kind of turned into, you know, we did like a big uh, survivor match where, you know, they'd started the team up with, uh, with Dylan Roberts, who's uh, still wrestling to this day. And uh, again, much better than me. You know, we were, if we were the rockers, he was very much Shawn Michaels and it's charitable to call me Marty Gennetti. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we had a, you know, a little bit of good run there and, you know, I did a, you know, a couple of like, yeah, do like charity shows and outdoor shows and rumbles and i did a, a future shock show um once or twice and you know it, 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 it was all enjoyable stuff but i think if i'm brutally honest i just wasn't that good at it you know <laughs> it just <laughs> it, it, i didn't really you know take to it i think and you know while maybe i maybe i could have you know stuck with it longer i think i'm just like the same in a in a long line of people who you know try it out and maybe it's uh you know, you realize, oh, wait, I'm not going to main event WrestleMania. Oh, wait, this is, you know, once you actually do start getting to the wrestling side of things, this is, you know, harder than uh, than, you'd, than you'd imagine. Um, I think that's kind of what happened with me. Like, I think that... Did you talk to Zillian... anyone backstage about it or anything and go, look, this is the way I'm feeling? Or was there anyone trying talking you out of it and go, oh, come on, you've only been doing it X amount of months or whatever? Yeah, it was kind of a case of... I would say because there was a comparison of me and Dylan, we'd be a training and like, you know, he'd, tra- he'd do like a drop kick picture perfect and I'd do it and I'd, you know, get, I'd be like Davey Boy Mo- Smith getting like three foot off the ground or like, you know, we'd, we'd run through spots and stuff and he was always like clearly the, the better of the two of us and I'd always be trying to, uh, trying to play, like keep up with him. And yeah, it kind of became clear that like he was probably going to be rather than us being a tag team, I was getting used on shows as a single and I was kind of getting a bit of a, a dog's life of training, if I'm honest. As, <laughs> you know, I think the, the train, trainer was, uh, I don't know, trying to maybe give me a bit of tough love and, uh, and make mm-hmm. me better, but maybe at that, that immature you know, age I was at, maybe I, I didn't take that the best way and started being like, you know what, do I really want to travel you know, the, the three hours each way to Manchester to get beaten yeah. up for four hours and told I'm the worst wrestler in the world. Like, I, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it does kind of, uh, yeah, the, the the glory of that does does run out. And yeah, I think I just started to get a bit disaffected by it. And, you know, I, I've mentioned this before. This isn't really anything to do with, like, me trying to do the wrestling thing. But, you know, uh, 2007 is the Benoit year as well. And I do remember oh, yeah. in that year kind of really falling off wrestling, you know, going from, especially like training the GPW at that point, all of my friends were rather wrestlers or, or other trainees. Yeah. Entirely, you know, that world was my world. And, you know, I'd point to it as probably, you know, probably you know, the happiest time of my life, to be honest, the first year or so when I was, you know, training there at GPW and, you know, making all those friends with a, with a similar background and a similar in- interest. And then that year that Benoit happened, I don't know. I just kind of, it really like, hit me and i think it hit a lot of people didn't it um and it kind oh, of yeah, took people haven't come back to wrestling since that have they you know with the eddie guerrero and then shortly after we had ben one and i think a lot of the audience just left then and never came back to wrestling did they yeah, that's it. I remember being a training once and someone did like a, a diving headbutt and somebody was like, oh, he benwired himself. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's, it's kind of not cool. I just don't like no. this whole wrestling <laughs> thing suddenly feels dirty. So you can buy, and again, I'm not saying that's the main reason, but you combine that with like, you know, I'm struggling a bit in training and maybe not enjoying it as much as I was at the start. I'm getting a bit like, oh, why, 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 why am I falling so far behind in this stuff? And, you know, I, I was, 
I'd done a few matches on shows, but I wasn't really getting utilized on shows like through to, you know, you mentioned there that, you know, I did that, did that rumble um, appearance where, you know, it was, you know, it is the thing that I'm kind of known for now, but like, yeah, we did a, we did a, a Royal Rumble type match for GPW, which they were the absolute, you know, best at. I know PCW did a rumble not long after them and all the promotions have, have done rumbles since, but, you know, they were very good at having like, you know, 30 distinct characters that, and you know, and a mm. well-told story through a rumble match that I remember thinking, oh, it's so cool. I'm going to be in a Royal Rumble. And then, you know, uh, the run sheet came through and, you know, this shocked me as well. Like, I didn't really understand how, like, a rumble was laid out. We had, like, a basically a big sheet with, you know, the time people would come in and then the time they were eliminated. And I just remember, like, reading it was, like, you know, 12 minutes, there, three seconds, Benson Richards enters. 12 minutes, 30 seconds, Benson Richards is eliminated. Um, so I was like, oh, <laughs> that's where I am in the, in the total police. <laughs> I got, like, it, it, it was even worse than that, to be honest, because, you know, I... At this point, I had gotten my, my, my custom ring gear made and, you know, me and Dylan had like this tag gear. It was like these really tiny, I mentioned I had tiny gear already, but these were tiny white trunks. Um, and I'm, I made my entrance and one of the commentators uh, literally said, oh, my God, this is a family show. Somebody tell him to put some clothes on. Uh, that's oh the... Uh, that's the, that's the size of those white trunks that I was wearing. But, you know, I, I'd invested a lot in all of that. And, you know, very excited about this tag team with Dylan Roberts. And then I got in the ring. And, uh, again, I mentioned earlier, my, one of my best mates, uh, Jiggy Walker, who was the booker at GPW at the time. I got in the ring expecting to do a bit of a back and forth. I kicked me in the gut and went, sorry, mate, and threw me out the other side. And uh, that was uh, that elimination oh, was no. class being uh, 11 seconds. Let me tell you, that gif. There's a gif of it. That's how, that's how quick it is. Um, <laughs> does not last 11 seconds it's probably about four seconds and i you know i, I remember the time being like quite dejected me and god like I'm, i've kind of been reduced to like a joke i'm like bo dallas or like, i'm that kind of a, a character in gpw i'm like this this bushwhacker was it bushwhacker luke or butch, butch? i think it was bushwhacker luke like yeah, style luke it, yeah. yeah and i remember my pride being really hurt by it i mean i think back now i think oh, that's really cool i've got like you know that's still the record in GPW now. The uh, whenever they do a rumble, they always reference it. You know the the record for quickest elimination is uh, is Benson Richards in uh, in two thousand and eight when he got uh, eliminated in, uh, in eleven seconds. But back then it, it kind of was like, oh, this is this is where I am um, in this company. This is this is kind of you know how how they see me and you know. Although, like me and me and Dylan had like some cool flourishes, like I mentioned in that Survivor Series match, where we get a lot of cool like rockers type offense, and you know, I think the the local fans, at least like the five or five to five or six of them, had kind of started to to recognize who we are. Like it went from there, where like I felt like I I might kind of get on shows and be like a regular. To yeah, I'm getting eliminated from a rumble in 11 seconds. They were starting to ask me to do referee duty again, and I remember at the time uh, thinking. Yeah. These low, these fans know who I am. They're gonna think, why is Benson Richards doing the refereeing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> thinking I was like this big I am, um, and I just thought, yeah, I started to kind of lose a, a bit of passion for it, really. And I think, yeah, you kind of, you start to realize that maybe you know, yeah, you, you belong on a on one side of the guardrail there rather than the other. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it was like it was a great memory, but it was like a also a little bit of like a, a painful memory of a bit of fail for a while. And it was like the mid two thousand. I kind of like, you know, made, you know, friends. I didn't kind of, for me, it was one of them where if I'm done with something, I'm done with something. And when mm. I left GPW, I literally didn't speak to anyone there for about six months, which probably wasn't the uh, the most healthy thing to do. And I kind of cut everybody off and kind of left it there. And it was a bit of a, a sore spot for me. And there was always years where I thought, well, I'll go back. I'll, I'll give it a, I'll give it a second go. But 
I kind of never did. And I think I only really made amends with it when I started, you know, started doing wrestling writing and writing reviews. And, you know, I wrote a, a blog about, you know, the time I, time I used to wrestle, um, which kind of was a, a good way of, you know, getting through the uh, <laughs> the anguish of uh, of trying that wrestling dream and, any, and it failing. Um, and then obviously yeah, doing the podcasting and stuff is, uh, you know, I think it's it's much where I'd uh, prefer to be in the wrestling world than, yeah, traveling to Manchester on a Sunday to, uh, to get dropped on your head and, uh, and told you're rubbish. Well, yeah, it's like uh, Kevin Nash said in that birthday video we got for you. Yeah, it was like, oh no, CTE uh, going into the podcasting. So yeah, I think you were. Uh, if 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 Kev if Big Kev approves, and um, he definitely did the right thing there. We, did you ever have um, any calls or anything from like people like a few months down the line going, oh, there's a show and they need somebody fancy coming along with your trunks or whatever? Yeah, that's it. Sam Bailey got in touch with me like a year later. And this is like, this is a sliding doors moment. Offered me a booking in one PW. <laughs> like, wow. He was like, I know. Like, what? But I was like, I was a year out. I'd not been to training. Mm. I was probably in better shape, if anything. I'd actually put a bit of muscle on at that point. And I did strongly consider it. Um, but I was like, ah, oh, no, give, you know, you must have like another trainee or something like that who can go and do the spot. And, you know, again, a name that, unfortunately, these stories are littered with names you don't really like to reference. Yeah. But Jack Gallagher was, you know, a big part of like GPW and Future Shock mm. School um, in the years I was training and was by far the best of a lot of us. And I think he ended up taking that book. And so, you know what, Martin, I could have ended up on it on 205 live but they're taking that one pw book and who knows um but yeah you could have been in a 20-man rumble with pack and uh sam <laughs> bailey and the like <laughs> definitely yeah same same career trajectory it could have happened um but no he, he kind of made that offer and i didn't go for it and like there was definitely times where like the gpw lads tried to get me back to training and such but nah it was kind of like i i'd done it then you know i tried it i'd had a few matches i'd worked in front of a crowd i'd you know managed to pop a crowd i'd, I'd had a big entrance you know got, got to come out to to offspring it wasn't my first choice my first choice uh trivia note was the uh the theme we used for bw the old uh, silver vision music i thought that'd be perfect music for an underdog yeah. baby face jobber uh, never got that entrance but you know i got to do that got to do rumble survivor series matches couple of singles matches on shows and you know it was kind of it was like you know got to got to fantasy cosplay as a, a wrestler for a couple of years know a, a few people in the wrestling business and yeah i think that was that was kind of enough for me i'd say yeah, that's good. Yeah, don't do yourself down. It's uh, more than a lot of people have done, aren't they? And, you know, and if anyone comes at you and says, oh, well, you can't talk about wrestling, you can go, well, look, at, there's a highlight video of me on YouTube. Look at all these bumps I've took. I'm uh, more than go. qualified Jump to Jack talk Island. about wrestling. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you can you can see me uh, leg Larry Jack Gallagher's head off. So there you go. You can all, you can all uh, enjoy that. Um, but yeah, the the very best of Benson Richards is a, is a YouTube video. One of my mates made where it is literally just me getting beaten up for 30 seconds. That is, if you want to sum up what my wrestling career was, that is what my wrestling career was, was, uh, was me getting beaten up. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, at least I was good at one thing, uh, if it wasn't anything else. So you didn't uh, fancy sort of like, you know, when it started like, uh, you know, getting hot again, you didn't fancy going, oh, perhaps I should uh, give this training thing one more chance. So you were like, no, nah, definitely not. I'm done. I think the problem was once it got hot again, Martin, I got in Legion with you and we started slagging off Brit Res on podcasts. So like, <laughs> I feel like if, if I turned up to a training school these days, even sort of do a few bump drills, I feel like I'd, uh, I'd go be public enemy number one. Brit Res is dead, is it? Um, and we'd, uh, <laughs> we'd very much, uh, yeah. Uh, face the wrath of uh, the wrestlers. I did. I mean, I did consider it when um, you know you mentioned Zach Gibson. of Fighting Spirit School opened up in Liverpool. I've got a couple of mates who've uh, who've been to that school, but I don't know. It's a young man's game, Martin. Like even when I was training, you know, I was twenty three, twenty four, mm. and that was kind of that was relatively old for for you know for for a new trainee at that point. You know, most of the other new trainees who started to come through would be like 
16 and uh, and 17. Um, although, you know, I've got a couple of mates who, uh, who started in the 30s. So, you know, what, time, what age did Batista start? Was he like 35, 36? You know, I'm not much older uh, than well, Batista. Well, it's, yeah. it's all over the shop, isn't it? Because people claim DDP? that he, he, he lies about his age, isn't he, Batista, apparently. <laughs> that's a, I think that's according to Cornet and the like. So we would take that with a pinch of salt. But yeah, like, I think DDP is the big one, isn't it? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he must have been like, you know, mid-30s because he'd been uh, bouncing and uh, running nightclubs for years, hadn't he? That's true. Yeah, yeah. He, he kind of got in with the wrestlers, didn't he? I think those lads are the, like, you know, Batista. I mean, he looks like Batista, so you know, there's no, <laughs> no yeah. wonder that even in his late thirties, he managed to get into wrestling. So yeah, unless I, uh, I take up some, uh, some special medicine or, or the like, I, I think it's probably <laughs> unlikely here in my, uh, my late thirties that I'll be giving it a second go. I think again, happier with the podcasting side of things, I'd say. You said, like, obviously, you know, uh, you know, the whole Benoit incident, and you know, coincided with your time stopping wrestling and things was that also around the same time you stopped becoming a huge you stopped being the biggest roh fan in the world or was that still continuing i think that was through training to be honest because like you know i was a big smart mark who thought the the ring of honor style was the best in the world and then you know going to train to wrestle you taught a very different way you know it was uh the gpw style was very booyah you know almost wwe style to be honest you know big shine at the start of the match you know beat down babyface comeback you know that that traditional oh, yeah, yeah. structure and that's beaten into it as the only way wrestling should be done you know and the way all these these indie idiots who are dropping themselves on the head and you know <laughs> messing with match structures and doing too many near falls and all that you kind of get told and told and told over and over again that that's that's not the way things are done so i think it was partly that i think partly like again being in the wrestling world myself kind of made me fall out of love a little bit with ring of honor but to be honest like it it started to go down the pan like i the, the peak ring of honor years were 2004 and 2005 to 2006 for me um other people will say later you know joe lemon will say later because i think he got into ring of honor later than that but that period where like cm punk was the man and you know brian danielson was around and samoa joe was you know just mm. was the champion in 2004 and you know just lost the belt that period was like the glory period of ring of honor where like every every show was special and fresh and good and in like the 2007 period where coincidentally i was involved in wrestling myself they kind of fell into this pattern of uh, to stop me if you've heard this before you know too many shows and you know uh you know the booker not being able to handle you know the the expansion of it and you know the booker running out of ideas and uh, in gabe sapolsky where like by the end of 2007 into 2008 and when gabe eventually left it it just wasn't the same company anymore so like for me, I, I actually think the peak of Ring of Honor was probably, you know, those Liverpool and uh, and Brockbourne shows, and then the, the subsequent two Liverpool shows that they did, like in like the 2006 period. I think, in hindsight, you know, that Nigel McGuinness Brian Danielson match that took past took place in Liverpool was the peak of Ring of Honor, and I think it kind of fell off from there. I think, yeah, although like I had the external reasons why maybe I wasn't so much into Ring of Honor anymore, I think most hardcore Ring of Honor fans kind of started to fall off in that period and yeah it's it's funny to think about really because yeah yeah that glory period of ring of honor is only you know four or five years long if you want to be generous about uh when it started and when it ended and obviously we've had you know another 15 odd years of, of history since but people like me will still talk about it like it's the uh it's the proper ring of honor from our from our glory <laughs> period in those years yeah, it's a completely different company now, isn't it? Because, I mean, um, the the really early years of Ring of Honor is when I was watching it and buying DVDs and stuff, you know, with likes of Paul London and all those oh, guys, yeah. and I loved it, and when it was on the wrestling channel and stuff. So that, for me, if 
If it's if it's in clear HD, it's not uh, Ring of Honor. I'm afraid it's got to be uh, it's got to be out of focus. You know, what uh, you know, maybe a uh, one hard cam, and that's all you're getting for a DVD. But yeah, I do really fond memories because it was kind of a, a weird time, wasn't it? Because obviously, you know, WWE just owned everything, which is kind of where we seem to be going back to again. But and and it didn't seem like there was much on the horizon. So when everyone, you know, when you saw little bits about Ring of Honor and stuff in Power Slam, and then certainly with the Wrestling Channel, you were like. Wow. I mean, summary, I haven't really been back and watched much of it, but, you know, certainly Paul... I think there was a DVD compilation called uh, um, Paul London, Please Don't Die, and that I'd never seen anything like that in my life, and then I, I suppose it looks pretty tame uh, compared to today's standards, you know, with the uh, ricochets and the like. Oh, yeah. Um, like, that, that was the thing. It was, for me, Ring of Honor kind of came on my radar through reading Power Slam, and it would have, like, you know, uh, you'd see like a picture of Paul Rundon, like running up the ladder, you know, that famous spot he did a couple of times in Ring of Honor. And, you know, you'd, you'd read reports of like, yeah, you know, him, him having these banger matches or, or Loki or Brian Danielson or, or Christopher Daniels. And it was at a period where, yeah, the WWE was kind of all there was. It was a bit cold for, for fans like me and you. So the idea that there was like, like this promotion putting quote unquote work rate matches on sounded like the coolest thing in the world um i i think for me, i think i maybe in those early years maybe uh, you know i just got into i think i'm allowed to admit it torrenting at that point so i downloaded a couple <laughs> of uh of dodgy uh dodgy torrents which would come full circle because i remember a few years later uh dobbing in one of the torrent sites because i thought i was best mates with uh with the, the guys who ran Ring of Honor and telling them where where exactly uh, people were getting their, their illegal Ring of Honor DVDs from. Sorry, everyone. Uh, I was, uh, was in fact, a cop caller at that point. Um, but no, you know, that was actually how I got into Ring of Honor was like, because I, I, I think I maybe downloaded a couple and then went on like the ROH shop where you'd have to like literally, you know, you'd order a DVD. Mm. And, you know, bear, bear in mind the DVD was being made what three or four weeks after the show took place and then it would take a couple of weeks for it to get to england so you're like you're watching these shows on like a, a six week or, or so delay but to us that was like the the coolest like you know most current thing in the world that we were able to watch this ring of honor product but i think the thing that actually made me a ring of honor fan was i was like messing around in the shop looking at like six ring of honor dvds that i was thinking of buying got to like the checkout and just thought uh, you know what, I don't want to spend this amount of money on a wrestling company that I, I don't really watch that much. And then two weeks later, you know, despite the fact I hadn't paid for them, those 60 DVDs turned up on my doorstep. Somebody at the Ring of Honor and made a made a bit of a mistake. And let me tell you, they made that money back in spades because once I got those six <laughs> free DVDs, uh, I absolutely loved them, you know, and like you say, you know, yeah. fell in love with Paul London's and your Logies and the like. I, it became, you know, my my biggest vice at that point was buying these uh these roh dvds the second they came out on the website and you know spending thousands you know going out and, and flying out to shows and buying tickets and the like so it paid off in the end but yeah kind of interesting that you yeah, pirate and then uh <laughs> and a few free VD- dvds or actually got me t- into it in the first place yeah, well, I mean, did you end up keeping any of them DVDs? So I don't think so much now, but there was a time point when um, some of the rarer ones were going for, like, tons of money on eBay, weren't they? It was ridiculous. It was kind of, I do remember we had a similar situation when um, WWE bought WCW, and that meant you the only footage of WCW you could get was um, was in, on the old, like, Turner home video uh, tapes, and so they were, like, some of the ones that were less widely available over here, sort of like, say, Bash at the Beach 98 and stuff, they were going for about 50 quid and stuff on uh, on Amazon. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Like I, I've got a couple that I that I use from like my podcast setup that people will see on like the video version of Grapple. But the reason my Ring of Honor collection is uh, quite paltry is that I sold them all. <laughs> yeah, I went on eBay like <laughs> maybe about like five years ago. Like I, you know, I've got a, you know, I got a. A legally obtained um, folder full of every Ring of Honor show ever already on my computer. So, do I really need the physical DVDs? Um, mm. Well, they were got they were they were literally going for like fifty quid at a time um, on eBay at one point because Ring of Honor is the the company with all of this great history who have never really monetized it. You know, even their their streaming service only has certain select shows on it. So, for a time, yeah, there was a real big market for those um, old school Ring of Honor DVDs. So yeah, I sold most of them to be honest. I think they paid pay for a couple of holidays, um, and the only ones nice. I've got left are the, the ones I couldn't shift. Um, to be yeah, honest with you, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously, there's a lot of uh, classic ROH on uh, YouTube now. They've got some cracking compilations on there, aren't they? Like you know, the best of Brian Danielson three matches. That's and true. Stuff, doing better. These matches we uh, Takeshi Marishi, but what is, is there like some kind of legal reason that they haven't uploaded all this old stuff? Do they not own the rights to it? Is there some kind of like dodginess there? I think it's music. I think that's purely what it is. You know, as much as we'll make fun of Hot Tag Media and you know when Progress changed their music and whatever, it is mm. a real issue because like those ring of honor shows similar to peak progress i feel like one of the big characters of ring of honor was always the music you know it was brian dinosaur coming out to final countdown it was cm punk coming out to afi homicide coming out to beanie siegel like that's a big part of the atmosphere on those shows and obviously back in the day when it was hooky dvds that the company were putting together (laughs) themselves they didn't have to worry about it but i think as far as putting that footage on a on an actual streaming service goes you either have to Dub it, which would be terrible. You know, like the, remember those yeah. old ECW tapes we all used to uh, used to get from HMV <laughs> in the early 2000s, where New Jack would be out there for 15 minutes with a terrible hip hop instrumental playing instead of Natural Born Killers. Mm. Um, it'd probably be a bit like that. Or you do what they've done, and this is what they seem to be doing these days: is they they're clipping the entrances and putting select matches on YouTube. Um, I think that's the thing. I think if you take the music out, the shows are unrecognizable. But also, it's a ma- probably a massive amount of work to, to do that and put them up. So unless, you know, WWE buy Ring of Honor at some point or like a bigger corporation than even Sinclair um, buy them and have the interest to do it, I don't think they're ever going to bother themselves to to do that amount of work, really, to pull all that out. I think that's that's purely what it is. Yeah, if they are going to do it, it would it just sound like it would be a lot easier just clipping everything, doesn't it, rather than having to redub <laughs> over stuff and that. I, mean, I can imagine that's the right pain for um, for any editor to do. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it is, it is such a shame because, obviously, we are starting to get more stuff on YouTube. But, I mean, imagine how many subscribers they would have for, like, ROH World or whatever if they were like, oh, we've got the entire Ring of Honor catalogue on here. I mean, it just seemed <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of money on the table for that one. Because uh, certainly, I mean... Obviously, not you with your uh, dodgy drive with every show on, but I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of fans who would like to go back and, and watch all, all the shows from day one. Oh, definitely. And there's been, you know, you mentioned my dodgy drive. There's been dodgy drives that have gone public at points with, with all of the shows <laughs> on that uh, because there is an appetite for it. Um, I wonder, I mean, you know, while we, it's a bit like the WWE, like, um, you know, we talk about like the back catalogue on the network. You know, we all like it to be there and we all like mm-hmm. the idea of it. But how much time in a week do we all spend actually watching it? And I think when, you know, true. when when WWE crunch those numbers and look at how many people are actually watching it, even though people say they want it, it's never as high as like, you know, the, the demand appears to be. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe that's, that shit might have, might have sailed at this point. But that's kind of, I think that's my hope, really. I, I, I've got 
no hope of Ring of Honor ever ever doing it. But if if like WWE ever bought them out or or, or got the rights, you'd imagine they'd you know put the work into you know throwing a back catalog like that up. Although saying that, you know, it's not that you know they hold the evolved back catalog and they've not done that. You know, they have you know the the back catalog of progress and the like, and they've just been doing best ofs there as well um yeah i suppose they've had that that conversation there internally as well even with those back catalogs is it is it worth the uh, the hard work to to do it for you know a few hardcore fans and yeah i think the answer's just been no so far and i think also with the quality especially like um you know those early progress shows um irrelevant of what you think of the camera work you know the later shows the uh, you know at least it's in hd and stuff like that but the early progress shows they'd have to do some right touching up for them to be even, like anywhere near net i mean because you can tell they've done it with some of the old ecw footage they've touched it up and it looks um you know it's still a bit grainy but it looks a lot better quality and i think they'd certainly have to do that with the progress shows or i don't oh, know even yeah. if they'll have to do that with evolve i mean surely some of those early evolve shows look dodgy yeah they do and you know mentioning ring of honor if they ever ended up on the network they're like the a lot of the entrances took place in pure darkness because they didn't have any any professional light and it's a type of stuff yeah if Vince McMahon found out it was on his network i thought he'd uh, i think he'd uh he'd have, have an aneurysm um if, if anything to be honest like uh, the, the progress stuff probably would hold up pretty well you would think like mostly like they, they always ran good buildings didn't they and it was mm-hmm. always relatively well lit even if like the video quality wasn't amazing i say that you know the the, the main chapter shows you know once they move to the ballroom maybe the, the earlier stuff wouldn't uh hold up as well um but yeah a lot of the evolve shows are like dingy arenas in front of nobody and and, and it's a bit dark and like um maybe that's an issue but saying that like saying a lot of early cw doesn't look great does it um that's already on the network so you know you can uh you can get around it i think if you really want to I think the issue, especially with this old footage going onto the network, is that on its own in isolation it looks fine, but then when you literally flick from a WWE presented product to that, it the the differences and obviously the budgets are different, but I think having it on the network, the the differences is, is just too jarring for me because obviously WWE is like you know the most polished thing on earth, and then you literally going straight onto this other thing that isn't. But like I said, in, in isolation they look fine, but on the network, I think they just want it for documentaries and stuff now, don't they? I don't think they've um, they've got any time to upload full back catalogs and stuff. And like you noted, there's clearly no not as much interest as they thought of people wanting to have all this wrestling footage available. So they're just going to use it for documentaries and stuff now, aren't they? Just take little clips and go, oh, look, when they used to be in bingo walls or whatever they say on every documentary they do. <laughs> yeah, that's pro- probably yeah the, the best you can you can hope out of the footage. Um, it's a shame, though. I mean, that's why, you know, I made jokes about it, but that's that's why piracy is important. <laughs> I know that's a, it's a weird <laughs> place to get to on a charity stream. Apologies. But I do think as far as like you know retaining history do we trust wwe you know the amount of stuff that's on the network that's edited or getting pulled off or you know was on the original network but then they moved to peacock and they haven't bothered bothered pulling it over i think we all you know when the wwe network launched we all did somersaults i'm like oh cool is this there's a wrestling network i'm gonna get all access to all this old wrestling and you know people were like me you know selling dvds and burning their old dvds and going i don't need this anymore i've got this network service <laughs> you can't trust them you know there can come a point where they can pull something off or they can edit mm. something and it's not as it is like that is you know true i think that you know the ring of honor back catalog and you know old you go, go to like you know puro stuff you know that the, the people keep you know full drives of and you know old territory stuff like the, the actual footage in its purest form 
you know, kind of like the history gets kept intact, doesn't it? By, you know, mm. the more unofficial channels than, than the official channels. And I think we all, yeah, you know, the, the people who were rejoicing over the launch of the network were once, especially the Americans, once Peacock launched, I, I do remember there being a scramble to be like, okay, okay, where, where can I actually, how can I get like these oh, old yeah, shows again? It, yeah. Like, where do I get them? Like, do, am I buying DVDs again? Like, is there, is there somewhere I can download this stuff? It actually, yeah, from like a, historical point of view i actually think that's quite important like that, that fan preservation let's call mm. it i think actually has to happen because otherwise you know you lose a lot of stuff don't you oh yeah definitely and um well and also they were i think um ages ago when i was at uni and i was doing like film and tv they were talking about like archives being a, a real issue because um, uploading them all digitally is not the best way and then dvds uh, you know after a few years um, run or whatever so they were talking about you know everyone's got all this footage now and obviously content is the big thing that um you know people are after and they were saying that you know the best way to actually keep footage is on film in a fridge and they were like and how who's gonna do that so they were saying like <laughs> you know how dodgy it is in in years to come with like itv and bbc and that how they are actually going to store all this footage and stuff so um but i suppose um we are coming up to um around the time that we're going to be getting our next guest on but something i did want to quickly mention because um We'll certainly be talking about it later with Scrump because he was there live. Um, was it's um, apparently it's ten years to the day that uh, CM Punk beat John Cena at Money in the Bank, and so it'll be great to chat to uh, Scrump about that later. I know there has been a lot of talk about Punk because it was, you know, the the pipe bomb promo. But um, yeah, ten years, Benno, since uh, that raucous crowd in Chicago, and, and what a you know that was probably the last uh, you know great great WWE pay per view, I think. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the, the, my my current, you know, you know me, Martin. I love a good time factoid. My current favorite factoid is, you know, that is a uh, further away from now than it is uh, in time to the invasion. You know, the invasion in two thousand and one is actually closer in time to the pipe bomb now than uh, <laughs> than than none we are in the in the current day. And doesn't that say everything? You know, that was ten years ago, and it doesn't feel like it because. WWE feel like they've been frozen in time <laughs> ever since, <laughs> and I think you're right. That is the last big. I mean, I suppose the the the, the Daniel Bryan, you know, quote unquote push as well, but that's like the last big moment where I think mm. we were all drawn into WWE. And I mentioned about you know Benoit era in 2007, WWE driving me off. You know, one of the yeah, I think a float of the round in like the the 09, 10 kind of era. But the thing that brought me back in proper was like a lot of people would say the the summer of punk. Um, and that, that 2011 run that fortunately didn't uh, didn't end the way we all hoped it would. But you know, was uh was still you know fun for the time and still you know to look back on now as like you know a time where we were all positively engaged and we were all hoping he was going to beat John Cena and we were all hoping mm. it was going to turn into <laughs> into something great and instead it turned into what Triple H versus Kevin Nash in a ladder match um, I don't know how that happened um, but still <laughs> crazy that it's 10 years ago and hey if CM Punk turns up at a at AW this year like uh, like I expect him to you know it's going to be a, a decade on um, kind of cool time isn't it? hello John hi hello great to be here no, great to great to have you on with us, pro wrestling journalist and historian. Uh, me and Benno were just talking about his time wrestling for uh, GPW and the like. Um, obviously, you've been to a ton of uh, a ton of UK shows. Did you uh, ever see Benno wrestle live, or have you been to like GPW and the like? Uh, I mean, I think I probably saw his entire career. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Back in that period, me and John used to uh, meet up at shows, didn't we, mate, uh, back then? The, uh, yeah, the yeah. Trucks, the GPWs and the like, 2006-07. Yeah, you're one of the, the unfortunate few who got to see me in those tiny trunks. 
I also remember uh, I sold off some of my wrestling tapes when I converted them to uh, DVDs. And I mm. believe there was a Memphis compilation that ended up being used in a GPW match as a weapon once. Oh, there you go. Brilliant. <laughs> Sounds like GPW. That could have been one of the raffle prizes for those uh, raffles you were doing, I think, by now. <laughs> yeah, it probably was, to be honest. Uh, yeah, that's it. Um, GPW, always always finding, uh, finding ways to, uh, to draw in the hardcore fans. Oh, yeah. Um, so, obviously, John, uh, the reason we wanted you on uh, for the stream today was, um, obviously, you being a wrestling historian, and we had um, the sad news this month of uh, two sort of major names in wrestling passing away. Firstly, uh, Sid Cooper, and then this past week, uh, Paul Orndorff. But, um, obviously, we've seen a lot of obituaries and the like for Paul Orndorff. You know, I suppose a lot of modern fans remembering him from maybe uh, early 90s WCW and the like. But um, he certainly had a, a big impact on uh, wrestling, especially in the 80s when you look at, you know, those uh, cards he was drawing in, in Toronto with the likes of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I mean, he had uh, one of the best uh, runs, house show runs of Hogan's uh, 1980s. And you saw this list in the Observer this week of uh, the venues that you sold out. I mean, this is the time you always have wrestlers go, you know, we were sold out every night and we sold out the garden. Most sellouts, we you know, fairly rare when you were on a really hot business, you, you'd sell out uh, now and again. But it was like literally every major, major arena in the country was like Madison Square Garden, Rosemont Horizon, the LA Sports Arena, sort of selling out once, sometimes twice for the rematch. And it was like a really a, a, a hot programme, just really seemed to to kind of click with the audience. And as you say, it all sort of stemmed from uh, the match in Toronto, which was just, uh, it was at the stadium, but it was part of like a, a sort of a big event going on there. But wasn't really hyped up. It wasn't like, you know, WrestleMania or a major event like that. It was just, we've got this stadium free. We'll, you know, put them in, see what we're doing. They quite often in the 80s, WWF would run stadiums like that because they were fairly cheap out season. Um, you know, if you weren't uh, making a big deal of it, it didn't really matter if you sort of had, you know, 15, 20,000 there because it worked out better than an arena. And they ended up legitimately selling the place out with sort of over 65,000. Yeah, I mean, they were massive houses, weren't they, Benno? Especially um, talking about, um, you know, around that time period, especially in, in, in the different countries as well, I think uh, often it gets overlooked by people. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, when people talk about, like, that that feud and that being, like, a, a money ticket, that's why, you know, they mention it in, in such regard. Like, you're talking absolutely, absolutely crazy numbers there. In terms of legacy, though, John, uh, why do you think um, uh, Paul Orndorff will be he'll looked back on it? It'll be certainly uh, WrestleMania and um, maybe his sort of wilder matches that he had with uh, Cactus Jack in WCW and the like. Yeah, I mean, he had that kind of longevity where he kind of uh, went through a, a few different eras. He was in the like the late territory era in kind of Georgia and Mid-South. And then he was in the big WWF kind of boom period of the 80s, but also was still there in the kind of the early years of the the Monday Night Wars. He was kind of always always around and always kind of had that name. Um, and until he sort of had to retire from injury, there was never he was never really kind of living off that legacy. He was never as um, sort of, you know, athletically gifted as he, he was in his prime because of the shoulder injury that he had and the nerve damage and, you know, should have should have taken time off during the Hogan feud, but obviously was never going to be in a position to kind of make that amount of money and make that stardom again. Um, but I think in, no one really sort of ever accused him of kind of living off his name and kind of coasting in the ring. He was still always out there, kind of uh, like skilled guy, good body, um, kind of like that looks sort of 
bit of toughness and charisma that kind of had that that real package where he didn't necessarily he didn't stand out in in any particular guards like you know he wasn't the tallest guy he wasn't he had a you know a really good body for his era but he wasn't like as as big as like some of the the most muscular guys you know he wasn't the fastest pace worker but he kind of had that that complete round package and that sort of that kind of area of area of legitimacy to him yeah certainly and especially putting him up against cactus jackie you know he looked quite uh, formidable in that but um so moving on now to um, someone that I, I'd heard his name, but I wasn't that familiar with him. It's Sid Cooper, and obviously he sadly passed away this past month. Um, but in, in terms of British wrestling and, and world of sport and the like, what what would be sort of like his legacy? Where did he fit into um, into British wrestling? I think the probably the best comparison, it's kind of quite a strange one, is to, to the Brooklyn Brawler. Um, because not so much in terms of their style or sort of like their matches, but kind of their position where they were like the 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 top guy who was there to make others look better one you could always rely on obviously it was a, a very different approach in ring because in the the states where you had the uh, the sort of first squash match tv format it was like brooklyn Boyle would go out there he'd get a couple of spots to kind of show that show that he was a legitimate person and then like losing a couple of minutes with uh sid cooper he'd be working sort of a full-length match because the the nature of the British shows, you'd have sort of four, five or six matches, depending on the setup. So you didn't really have kind of room to have, you know, a match go two minutes because then everybody else would have to kind of fill the evening because you always had to run kind of a predictable length to the, to the shows. Uh, so we really have this ability to kind of work with any opponent, uh, make them look really good. Um, and in a, in a way that kind of the other wrestlers kind of really respected and made always when, when sort of a new guy got started, um, particularly at their sort of the, the middle and heavier weights, uh, they, they'd always like get made a, a name by putting him with, with Sid Cooper. And it was kind of his thing that a lot of the fans maybe didn't really kind of recognize that aspect of the, the game, but sort of within the business, it, that was very much kind of respected to his role. Yeah, because, um, like I said, I know it, it wasn't a name that I was overly familiar with. Was he someone who sort of, like, petered out during the 70s and 80s, or was he still going up until the sort of, like, really dying embers of it in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, he was still, certainly still going in the early 90s. He was actually on the first live show I ever went to. Was uh, The main event was Big Daddy and Johnny Kidd, who... Amazing to look back, Johnny Kidd was actually in the early years of his career at that point, which certainly didn't realise at the time, mm-hmm. against Count Count Von Zuppi, who was a, a wrestler, and I think he might have owned the ring, who was a <laughs> dentist in his spare time, and, and Sid Cooper. So, I mean, he was still kind of performing that that role kind of very late to his career after having started in the late 50s. And his actual, his first TV appearance was uh, the second of the cup final shows with McManus and Palo. So he really did kind of... Um, st- uh, go over all the, the sort of the different decades and eras then particularly notable for being uh the, the guy who got uh william regal to get into wrestling kind of saw him as a kid and was you know initially went along and would like you know boo all the bad guys and then sort of got fascinated with uh, the way that he was able to kind of control and and g up the crowd and particularly kind of get his heat back after sort of regularly losing matches 
Yeah, certainly a legacy to have, you know, bringing the likes of Regal in and uh, and that, you know, obviously a big name. Um, and obviously he was he was um, sharing a lot to do with uh, Sid Cooper recently on his social media. I know he always <laughs> thought back on him fondly. Um, you mentioned that first show you just went to, though, John. I'm quite intrigued, though. Where, where was that and um, sort of like what year are we talking here? So this was uh, 91. This was in uh, Stevenage, the town that I grew up in. And it was a four-star promotions, which is run by Neil Evans, who was was Tiny Tom Thumb, um, was still sort of one of the, the promoters who was still going at that time. And I think the, the thing that I most remember this show for is that I was I just started writing for a, a fanzine called Spiked Piledriver at the time. So I was, you know, really excited with the idea. We, we, this would be the first time we'd ever covered a, a live show because this was at a time where... <laughs> You know, if you got wrestling in your, your town once a year, it was a really exciting thing. So <laughs> we, we went down. Uh, this is the time you had to go to the venue to buy your tickets. So we went down a few weeks beforehand, kind of spoke to this guy who took the money for the ticket. And I said, you know, I, I write for a magazine. Can I maybe interview one of the wrestlers? Uh, and he said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. You, you come along the day, uh, your dressing room is over here. So we'll just go in and, and sort it out. So I turned up on the day, um, went over to the dressing room. And of course, this guy had nothing at all to do with the wrestling promotion. He was the caretaker for the venue. Uh, he obviously <laughs> certainly never spoke at all. So, you know, I just uh, casually walk in just five minutes before the show starts, walk into the dressing room, see there's you, Big Daddy, John Elijah, both sitting there in their pants looking there, just give me this amazingly dirty look of what the hell are you doing here? Who said you could come in here? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I quickly got out. And it was... Um, if you've ever seen the, the Missy Hyatt skits where she tries to become a, a journalist in the early 90s, WW pay-per-views and gets chased out, it was not quite as bad as being carried out by uh, Stan Hansen, but certainly at sort of 14 years old was quite scary nonetheless. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Did you um, did they, did they run in Stevenage often? Did you manage to get to uh, any more shows from sort of like um, you know, this era of wrestlers? Yeah, so they didn't come... Uh, four-star promotions again but they had uh rws which was the kind of the new name for the crab trees came uh, in 92 and, and 93 um and they both had sort of they would like the battle royal shows and they sort of be daddy the daddy singles match and the, or the tag match rather than the haystack singles match and um there's also a, a tournament where the final had terry rudge in um, and years later, you'd always hear wrestlers go, oh, Terry Rudge, he was like, he was really the most skilled person there. He was like really underrated. You know, if, if he kind of, he had other interests, if he stuck around, he could have been like the big guy. And yet everyone knew he was like the real, the real good quality wrestler. But unfortunately, the experience I had with him um, was he was in this uh, tournament semifinal. Um, and the entire match basically consisted of him coming out with what was absolutely the most ridiculous wig on ever and denying he was wearing a wig. About five <laughs> minutes of going back and forth with the audience saying, you're wearing a wig. No, you're not. You know, where's your hair gone, Baldy? It's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then he, uh, Johnny Kidd comes in the ring, pulls the wig over so it's uh, covered his face, bell rings, sunset flip over in three seconds. So that was the, my entire experience of seeing Terry Rudge wrestle. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you got, that was an easy payday for him then, uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. That's that's amazing. But it, so in, in terms of sort of like, you know, obviously you, you just said your first uh, show in 91. Um, were you sort of like a, a traditionalist or were you quite happy to go along to sort of like, you know, WWF when they started running over here? Or was this, you know, would, did you prefer these sort of like smaller uh, world of sporty type shows? 
Um, I mean, I'd go to, you know, any restaurant I could get my hands on. I, I do remember kind of being, I think, probably the opposite of most traditional kind of British wrestling fans because I, I went to his first show and it was a good event, but you could obviously see, you know, the guys were kind of cooperating together to like do some of the holes and it wasn't quite a legitimate sporting event. And I was like, I was a bit confused by this, but I just went home and thought, well, maybe this is just, you know, for some reason in in Britain, they, they fix all the matches, not like the real stuff over in WWF. <laughs> That's quite funny, actually, because obviously, you know, I imagine all the uh, British wrestlers were saying how fake um, WWF looked. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah. but obviously, you, gonna... you know, you... Oh, sorry, sorry, Ben, I'll go. No, no, I was just going to throw in there. I was going to like, you know, obviously as someone who, who lived through like the 90s, John, like the the, the the story, you know, people will tell about Brit Res is, you know, oh, it was World of Sports and then it dies and then we were in the doldrums and then FWA came along and then, you know, the progress lads and the icw lads were like yeah and then we came around we we took it out of the, the smoky uh, smoky arenas and such and like you know as someone who kind of i mean is that story accurate i mean you know that as someone who, who went to shows in the 90s and you know i suppose you, you know you you were somebody who was in the in the ground for us uh, with fwa is like is the story as simplistic as maybe people want to tell from that period yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's the truth certainly in terms of the number of shows that were running and the fact that it, it basically started to get impossible to to work as a full time wrestler, uh, mm. which kind of deterred uh, a lot of kind of the TV guys who were like, well, if I can't make a living out of this, it, it's probably time to to hang it up. Um, you certainly still you still have the talent, but I mean, you know, All Star had their there's you know they're good points they're boy points but i mean the, the mid 90s uh i started going to uh croydon quite regularly sort of every month um and that was like really i, I was really into that because it was they were doing kind of storyline stuff you'd go to a show and it wouldn't be sort of a, a one-off daddy come, big daddy comes in you know beats the heels and you never see him for another year this was like <laughs> you'd I remember I think the first show I saw there was like a very young James Mason then after his match he he was down on the floor and Klondike Kate ran in and did a big splash and thought this is for you know you're never going to see this in WWF like it's, it's women coming in just destroying this poor young lad so yeah I want to see this this mixed tag match next month um you'd see some absolutely terrible matches you'd see some fantastic matches you'd see uh you know, like Dave Finley and Dave Taylor and Brookside and Doc Dean were still still going. And then you see like a match with, uh, I think it was a, the Viking Warrior and Lee Bronson, where literally they locked up. He did a boat go behind and took him down and sat in a, a rear waist lock for literally four minutes. And mm. I don't know how the match ended because I think that's the only time I've ever left the show early because it was so bad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was a real mixed picture. Um but yeah, you certainly you'd, you'd be really excited to kind of see a show coming to your area because most places it it was like a, a kind of a one off once a year rather than you know fans traveling to shows or kind of uh, going to a, a venue later as kind of came around again in sort of the the late nineties early two thousands where you had kind of the new school promotions um, mm. but you also had kind of the riding off the coattails of it being on on Channel Four and suddenly you know wrestling on the marquee you're going to sell some tickets. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly you've seen a, a lot of different periods, haven't you, in uh, in British wrestling and things like that. Did you get caught up in sort of like you know when it started becoming hot again in in twenty in 
sorry, in 2012, were you sort of like heading to Progress and PCW and the and likes of those shows on a regular basis? Yeah, so I think I started traveling to Progress in, I believe, 2014, 2015. I know I moved down to Bristol in 2008 and my first year here, there was like one show I went to and that was in Bath and kind of that changed to, you know, it really kind of peaks in like 2017 where I think I went without particularly traveling or sort of staying overnight in many places I, I went to 50 shows that year so it's it's going to be really interesting to see how long it uh, takes to kind of re- revive again this time around after sort of this, this kind of great forced reset we've had um, and what's going to happen with you know what talent is available and how many guys are going to be able to kind of make a full-time living because I think that was really the the big sort of one of the big points of a kind of a last boom was you'd have sort of you know mid card upper mid card guys who sort of weren't necessarily headlining shows but were still and you know they weren't signed to wwe or new japan or anyone but they were still kind of going full time kind of giving up their job and making a living and it's you know obviously i assume most of those guys have had to kind of fall back you know there's no furlough for self-employed wrestlers so i'd imagine a lot of them have had to kind of rethink where they they stand um so it's going to be really interesting to see how this gets kind of gets rebuilt and you kind of get that momentum going again yeah that's i remember that when that was like the thing you know wrestlers tweeting you know i'm going full time and it was like this big celebration thing in like the the 2016 2017 kind of era uh, that's a big part of it you kind of forget um but i was gonna ask i mean obviously i remember when you you know you moved in 2008 because like i say we were uh we were meeting up at future shock shows and gpw shows and kind of seeing that like mini northwest boom um before you moved away john and like would you say like those kind of promotions you your PCW of the world was that to you kind of the genesis of that 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 Brit Res boom period that we got like in the two thousands like what would would you trace it back that far um, like what where do you think it started Cause, you know Progress will, will take the credit for it ICW will take the credit for it you know the move to you know a PCW you know running running nightclubs and you know rowdy football style fans um, at shows like when did you first start to kind of notice that change to, to kind of the culture that became the norm in the in the mid-2010s? Uh, I mean I think it's you know as you say it's a cliche but I mean going to that first progress show and kind of you know the sold out electric ballroom and I think I, I described it at the time it was it was the closest thing I'd seen to the ECW arena shows except it had women in clean toilets. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> That's coming from a guy who actually went to the actual ECW. Yeah, arena. I know yeah. It's still, <laughs> <That was> <laughs> I know it's still, I know it's still going today, isn't it? But yeah, it's not. It's nowhere near what it was uh, when you were going in the late nineties, for sure. But I think certainly, um, you know, the, the things like the Future Shock and the GPW. I think a big thing about it was places running venues regularly and being able to kind of experiment with the idea of, you know, long-term storylines and. This, you know, at a time when you couldn't really further stuff, but you didn't have the social media to kind of further stuff. So it had to be done completely at the venue um, to kind of do the kind of long, long term stuff. But that's really what people then had to was a skill people had to use, particularly when, you know, you start doing shows, uh, shows on the Internet. Kind of people are watching it on VOD rather than actually going to the events uh, that kind of uh, the long term kind of storytelling and the kind of um it can't just be a, a one and done really was kind of a big change to sort of the mid 90s era mm, yeah that's it where like people can you know it was kind of like you know gpw future shock it was maybe more about like returning fans and maybe the odd dvd sale but yeah i think that is you know 
I remember it being, you know, we were all on the UK fan forum at one point and it looking, you know, kind of looking at like Alex Shane trying to book angles on the UK fan forum and thinking, oh, what's he doing? Um, how embarrassing is this to kind of that becoming the norm, you know, the, the use of Twitter and, the, you know, the word of mouth and the, all of that stuff kind of is a big part of, again, why, you know, it became, you know, BritRes became a thing that people could follow who weren't just in the immediate local area. It became, you know, product and, and fans, the, the uh, product and wrestlers that people, you know, got an attachment to and could follow from afar and, and, and yeah, you know, invest in via the, the magic of the internet rather than, yeah, just that, you know, that one local spot show that might come in and, uh, and scorch at the town and then leave again. I think also that really meant people had to think a lot more kind of about establishing their character, getting kind of a consistent character mm. um, because people would now sort of see you, you know, who who normally the only time they see you is their local promotion and you could do a completely different thing every night in different places. Uh, and now you've been seen in like all kinds of different promotions. And even if, you know, you might be a, a baby face one place or here or somewhere else, but you needed to have kind of a consistent character, particularly if you were then kind of selling your own merchandise, trying to kind of be uh, remembered by mm. kind of fans from different places. Yeah, yeah that's it. That marketing side of things, which is like a, a skill that yeah, wrestlers have to learn in that period as well. So obviously, John, you've written various travel logs and stuff, haven't you? What would you say were your sort of like top couple favorite shows that you've ever been to from going to Japan, from going to America, from obviously watching like, you know, their 50 shows in one year? What were some of your sort of like more memorable shows that you've been to? Um, I think kind of a strange one. So um, there was a Long Island Wrestling Federation show, which was turned out to be literally in Cypress Hills, which is... Not as glamorous as you might think from the uh, the description, um, <laughs> and it was. I think it was Loki and Homicide were like the only names on this kind of. Uh, I think it was largely a training school thing, but it was in basically an abandoned warehouse. Um, and instead of ring lights, they had a the the door to the warehouse open and a truck outside pointing its headlights. So I guess you know the the time limit on the show was how long the battery lasted, but that was uh, that's quite memorable. Um, I think the the two New Year's Eve tournament shows in Japan, which were the uh, the DDT and the uh, Big Japan, would have a, one wrestler from each promotion in the tournament. And, uh, the last one was the the end of 2019, start of 2020. So it was uh, after kind of following him through the like the British scene, seeing uh, Drew Parker in the last ever match of the the. 2019s and the first ever match of the 2020s um starting off the decade with his uh his nose uh stuck into dash kdino's backside um and it's kind of amazing to look back and think and actually probably it's been mainly downhill this decade since then <laughs> and it's certainly i mean japan i went um you know just before the pandemic last year and it's certainly um as much as the dome shows are good if you, you do feel like you're certain away from the ring but it, those are the special shows, aren't they? Sort of like the smaller ones that you go to, at, you know, the, basically in warehouses somewhere in Japan, like the Storm shows and the likes of the shows that you're talking to. That's what makes the trip special. As good as you know, you're watching Okada versus whoever in the main event. The smaller shows tend to be more special than the big ones, don't they? Yeah, I think another favorite one was, um, it was also a big Japan show, but it, this was in Yokohama and it was, literally just in the, the basement of, a, of some like arts theater building um so there were probably about 30 people there but it was a uh, at uh it was a frank atsushi uh, produce show which is basically the referee 
being given like a small budget of a few hundred dollars and told like yeah you can book whatever you like it will just be a laugh we'll make a bit of money and get everyone get some work out of it um and the entire first half show was just the most ridiculous comedy ever um i think there was like two bumps on the entire first half of the show um you ended up doing the thing where like everybody in the arena was um holding hands and then somebody was grabbing hold of the rope to give this guy extra leverage and you know one person at the end would wiggle their hands and everybody wiggled it and went the whole way along it was basically like butlins camp but with uh mm-hmm. like big japan wrestlers so they're definitely you know having a, a bit of a night off of the uh the light tubes didn't you also go and see like um, a women's promotion in basically what was someone's living room Yes, it's um it was Gatto Move. Uh they now run shows as, as Choco Pro without the crowds. But this was uh I think it was a dentist's office. So it's about the size of a, like a tiny pharmacy. Um so there's room for I think there's maybe about sixty fans absolutely cramped in. There's no ring, it's just like a crash mat on the floor. Um the window sill is the top rope. But it's actually amazing how how well wrestling works without a ring and without like much room for movement because there's still certain things you can do that, that work as pro wrestling and then the, the creativity that they're they're doing now the uh, shows with no audience and they recently had a there was a match with Minoru Fujita who's one of the like the top deathmatch guys um he was taking on uh, Mesa Gura who's um you know barely five foot she's probably about 100 pounds or so um and they worked on this match with no audience. They're on a crash mat. They're using the, the walls to bounce off that. They went 54 minutes. And it was an absolutely amazing match. It was like genuinely exciting match. But you kind of forget, you know, you start off watching this and you've got to kind of have this like this mindset of of how it's going to work with with no crowd and kind of seeing the kind of cooperation. But you end up getting really into it. And it's like this is genuinely, genuinely good and exciting match. Oh, yeah, I can imagine certainly a lot of creativity there and stuff. But, um, John, obviously you've forgotten more about wrestling than me and uh, me and Ben O now, so thank you totally. so much for uh, for uh, taking the time to come on and speak to us today. With any uh, plugs, obviously you've written a, a bunch of books and you've got your own um, book review website, haven't you? Yeah, Pro Wrestling Books is uh, still still going strong, still reg- updating that fairly regularly and probably a backlog of about 100 or so books. And... Uh, the, the latest book, uh, Have a Good Week Till Next Week, which is the the story of British wrestling, kind of a compilation of all the Fighting Spirit magazine articles. Uh, that's still going well, still getting picked up and, and read. So, yeah, definitely check that out if you get a chance. Yeah, I can't recommend the books enough there, certainly. Um, I've, I've gone back and read them a couple of times. But, um, yeah, thank you, John. Uh, we'll let you get off, and uh, thanks for joining us. No problem. Good to speak to you. Good to see you, John. See ya. See ya.